Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bob Left Sets podcast. My guest this week is Randy Backman, legendary musician from Canada, founding member of the Guess Who, founding member of Bachman Turner Overdrive, still playing music, doing radio. Great to have you here, Randy. Wonderful to be here. Okay. You're a legend. Okay, well, thank you. I'll take that to the bank okay. and get nothing. Okay, so you're originally from Winnipeg. Yes. So what's that like? I mean, first of all, a lot of the funny thing is that so much great music comes from Canada, especially now because government supports it, whereas we get no support in the United States. But people in the United States are really ignorant to Canada, even though it's just across the border. Yes. So what's growing up in Winnipeg like? Well, I've been on tour in Europe, and you go into a record store in Germany or Holland or anywhere, and there's a map on the wall of Canada. Really? And there'd be a gold circle around Winnipeg with a little arrow going, Neil Young, Randy Bachman, BTO, the Guess Who, and then around Saskatoon, Joni Mitchell, around Montreal. So this is like downstairs in the record store, the whole wall. So Canada is very, I mean, the world is very aware of Canadian music. And growing up in Winnipeg was amazing. It's dead center in the middle of Canada which is pretty much the middle of North America, and it's also the middle of nowhere. Okay, just because people know nothing. If you drive south, where do you hit the United States? Minneapolis is 500 miles south. Okay. 500? Yeah, 495. Okay. How yeah. far north of the border is Winnipeg? About 75, 80 miles. Okay. So you drive down there. But growing up there was like Liverpool in the 60s. The drinking age was 21, so everybody from 21 under went to all the high school dances. So this is, you know, this is Neil Young, Sugar Mountain. Yeah, Neil Young. You know, I Young. can't go to the teen club anymore. Yeah, this is like Neil Young and the Squires, Fred Turner and the Rockin' Devils, who became the Turner right. Back Road Drive, Burton Cummings and the Devrons, and I was in a band called Chad Allen and the Reflections, who when we sent in the song Shake on all over, the record label said, we don't like you, can't use your name, we're going to put Guess Who under it, and we became <laughs> Guess Who. Okay, but you're in Winnipeg. What does your father do for a living? He's an optician. I wear eyeglasses. Really? And how many generations Canadian are you? Is he an immigrant or his parents immigrants? My dad was born in Winnipeg, but his parents, his dad came from Germany. Came from Germany. Why'd they end up in Winnipeg? Well, it was the same thing with my mother's side. They were Ukrainian-Polish. They landed in Canada. They went to the train station and said, this is how much money we've got. And they said, oh, you could go to Thunder Bay or you could go to Winnipeg or you could go. You went as far as your money. Like you see on TV, a kid right. running away from home. Here's 80 bucks. I got to get out of here. Where can I go? Or you can go to Poughkeepsie, New York. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's what they did. So they ended up there. Okay. So you're in Winnipeg. Actually, I've never, I've been to Toronto. I've been to Vancouver, been to Montreal, been to other places in Canada. I've never been to Winnipeg. So what's Winnipeg like when you're growing up? Well, when you grow up and you're poor and all your friends are poor and it's an immigrant city, you're happy. Your dad works, your mother does the house, you've got winter six or seven months of the year. And when you get old enough to stop playing hockey outdoors, right. 40 below, because then there was no indoor rinks. You just, as a kid, you and had you to go early and shovel the rink. And you played? Played hockey for a while, but I, was a vi I started playing violin when I was six. Okay, what and was the inspiration Your teacher would always say to you, don't play a sport where they bend your fingers back. Don't, you can't play hockey. You can't play baseball. So consequently, I started playing violin, and I did solo things like running, swimming, riding a bike, not with team sports where they would break my fingers or hurt my hand. So I kind of grew up a nerdy sissy playing violin from the age 5 to 14 until I saw Elvis on TV, and I'm playing Royal Conservatory violin, classical violin. What is that? 
and my mother's younger sister there, and they're screaming at the TV set. And Elvis is on the bottom half, is blacked out because he's shaking around. I'm going, what, what is that guy doing, and why is everyone screaming? That's Elvis Presley. Who? What? What's that name? It was a weird name the first time you heard it. Elvis Presley. That's called rock and roll. What's that? It's a guitar. Who's that guy behind him? Scotty Moore playing this great hybrid of Chad Atkins and Merle Travis rockabilly stuff. And I said, that's what I want to do. Never touched my violin again. Okay, let's go back for a second. Why did you start playing the violin to begin with? I'm about five or six, born just after the war. Um, my parents wanted better for me. And they said, okay, we, want, we will afford to give you music lessons. What do you want to play? Drums, too loud, too noisy, too expensive. What's your next choice? Piano, too lousy, too noisy, too expensive. Well, okay, harmonica, too little, too, you know. I end up with a little half-sized violin. And you do take lessons in school or outside no, school? I took lessons outside Royal Conservatory of Music, the, the big deal. But what my mother wanted, being Polish-Ukrainian and my dad being German, was for me to play polkas and jigs and reels at all their house parties and weddings and bar mitzvahs. I grew up in the Jewish part of town, so everybody was... You might be Russian, but you might be Russian Catholic or Russian Jewish. To us, there was nothing. We were just a bunch of kids growing up there. So there was these mad house parties and weddings and bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and everything was going on. And I would go there and play all this. I mean, I'd play all the Jewish klezmer stuff and the violin and, and all the Ukrainian polkas and stuff. And then the odd waltz. And it got pretty boring after a while because all the adults are there getting hammered and drunk and dancing like Cossacks and leaping in the air just like you see in the movies. And then... And then I'd go and do my Royal Conservatory Chopin and Tchaikovsky. So I'm going, this is such a weird polarization of me. Then when I saw Elvis, it was the same thing. This weird polarization of all coming together. Because he would do Old Shep or he would do a church song for his mother. And he was trying to be like Dean Martin, like his mother loved her, Bing Crosby. And then suddenly would out come this, you ain't nothing but a hound dog, rock and roll. So this guy would go from being a calm, cool collector to this wild, raving maniac, who then later when I said, oh, Elvis is my favorite guy, he's like wild. And they said, have you seen or heard the black Elvis? Well, who's that? It's Little Richard. He wrote Tutti Frutti. He wrote Ready Teddy. He wrote Rip It Up. He wrote all these Elvis songs. Let me hear Little Richard. When I heard, I just went nuts. It's actually like the Beatles. They felt the same way. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, just to go back in your family, how many kids in the family? Four. Four boys. And where are you in that hierarchy? Oldest boy. Oldest boy. So all the hopes and dreams were in you. Yes, and I was the designated babysitter. Those were the, the days when your parents said, we're going out to visit your grandparents, play with your brothers in the streets till the streetlights come on, then go in the house, put on your pajamas, go to bed. There was like, there was no, nobody worried about kidnapping or nothing. I know, like, exactly. I walked to school, you know, yeah. until like eighth grade. Yeah, we'd walk to school. And even first grade you were walking to yeah. school. Was your place? mother would take you the first day. Okay, <laughs> My mother right. didn't even take me the first day. <laughs> you're on your own. Right. And so that was it. So I grew up with three brothers, but I was then used to being a, a maker of decisions. When it's time to divide something, I cut it up. They all get to pick one, two, three, four, and I get the last piece. So when you're cutting a pie in four, you cut it pretty damn equal. You don't <laughs> cut it, take the big piece first. You wait till your little brothers take the piece. So when I left the Guess Who, nobody would play with me because I was kind of blackballed after I left the Guess Who after American Woman. I went to my brothers who had kind of played in the family band around the house. Okay, so when you were playing violin at these various occasions, were you getting paid? No. Oh, okay. Just a social thing. I got Christmas presents, though. Okay. So, in any event, you hear Elvis. So, you switch to the guitar? Yeah. How does that happen? Give us a little more detail. My cousins played guitar. 
I had an aunt, my, young, my mother's younger sister, who had blonde hair and a boyfriend with a white Chevy convertible, and they would take me to all the country music fests because they wanted to see the Ray Price violins because violin was very big then in country music, fiddle as they called it. And, but I started to notice the guitar players who are Thumbs Carlisle and, you know, and Chad Atkins and Merle Travis, and I'm noticing that. Then I hear all the, on one of the shows, I see Jerry Lee Lewis. And he comes up and he plays You Win Again in Crazy Arms, the Ray Price song. And suddenly he starts doing good, doing good, a whole lot of shaking going on. And his hair is beautiful. It's all wavy. And he stands up, the piano stool falls over backwards, crashes on the stage. Everybody looks around. He starts a whole lot of shaking going on. And the place goes crazy. They go nuts. This is an outrage. What is this guy doing to country music? The next day on the radio at noon, we come home for lunch from school. They play a whole lot of shaking going on twice and go, this guy went crazy last night. The Winnipeg Auditorium and I phone and go, I was there. I was there. It was, a, it was electric. It was incredible. Then I see Elvis at the same time. And I hear a little, a little bit, bit slower because I want to make sure. That was Jerry Lee Lewis. You Jerry saw? Lee Lewis. And, but at, that, sh- and at that time... He did not have any fame in Calgary. I mean, in, he in was Winnipeg. in Winnipeg. Well, he was he just was, another guy? He was kind of a country guy who played this boogie-woogie piano. He's kind of an outcast. So if you listen to his first records, it's You Win Again, Crazy Arms, uh, That's When Your Heartaches Begin. He was doing Ray Price kind of songs with a honky-tonk. But he had this one song shaking all over them. When he did it, changed the world. Okay, so you called the next day and you were there, and was everybody talking about it in school? Everybody it? talking about it in school. Did you see Elvis on TV? Yes, I did. I, I'm going to play guitar. I'm going to be like Elvis. I really wanted to be like Scotty Moore. Right. But Elvis made me play guitar. Okay. That, that, so how did you get your first guitar? My cousins had a guitar. Mm-hmm. I went to them and said, I need to play guitar. The great thing about violin is it's a lead instrument. I could pick up a guitar and play the lead on everything. Okay, but there are four strings on a violin and there's six strings the six on, on a guitar. guitar. So they taught me a couple of chords. They said, we're this going. Is your cousins. My cousins. Yeah. And it's a folk guitar and acoustic guitar. No, it's a, it's a Chuck Berry blonde single cutaway Gibson. I've seen Chuck Berry on TV. A Chuck Berry guitar. Are you kidding? And the same thing Scotty Moore played was a blonde Gibson guitar. And so they teach me three chords. And they teach me the, my first song, I Walk the Line, Johnny Cash. So I learn I Walk the Line. And I go, this is kind of like, that's all right, Mama. I just got to play it faster. Same, oh, it's the same three chords over and over. Well, this is just like Hound Dogs, the same three chords. My cousins come back after a week of being away fishing, and they come, they come to get their guitar back, and I could play every song on the radio better than them, going, what happened? And I could play the leads. How can you play the lead? Well, I play lead on violin. I just found the notes on the guitar, and they go, wow, you're incredible. So that was the beginning for me. Okay, but then how did you get a guitar? Sears catalog. Okay. Couldn't afford to go into a music store. Everything was three and four hundred dollars. Look right. at Sears, thirty-four ninety-five. A harmony guitar. You want an electric? It's an extra ten bucks. It's forty-nine dollars. You buy the guitar. You start to play. Well, well, which guitar did you buy? The acoustic or the electric? I bought the acoustic, which I found it was a mistake. Right. Nobody could hear it. I went to a drummer who was the drummer. The guess who to this day, Gary Peterson. I was fourteen. He was twelve. I said, do you want to be in a band? He said, no. How'd you know him, from school? Yes, from school. And he also played with all the big bands when they came to Winnipeg. When the Dorsey band came, or Lionel Hampton, he started playing drums when he was four. He'd go and do a drum solo with Gene Krupa. There's all kinds of pictures of him. And he was how old? He was was four and five and eight when he was doing that. I met him when he was 12. And he'd play our hockey band. We'd go to a hockey banquet. And here's a solo from Gary Peterson. Okay, for those people who don't even know, what is a hockey banquet? Well, you're on hockey teams. You're playing. At the end of the year, there's a little dinner for the kids to encourage them. And the best goalie is 
Knut Olofsson. The best bad player is Randy Backman, who doesn't do anything. He's afraid to hurt his fingers. The best goalie is Gary Peterson, because he's a stock little guy who plays drums, and he's got the arms, and he can dive around, and he can be the goalie. So it's just a little thing. And older hockey players come there from the Winnipeg Jets or whatever they were called then, and they kind of hype the kids up on being in the sport. But they would also have music. They'd have music, and this kid would play a drum solo. Like like Gene Krupa drum solo, you know, like so Buddy when, Rich. When you were still even playing the violin, you were aware of him. Yes. Okay. And then I switched to guitar and I said, do you want to be in a band? And he said, to do what? I said, we'll play the high school dance. Come to the dance, all they play is records. I know I walk the line, I know Bye Bye Love, I know all these songs. We'll just get a mic and sing. And it doesn't matter if you can sing or not, it's rock and roll, who cares? You know? <laughs> and you just play drums. And he said, and how much will we get paid? I said, well, we don't get paid. And he said, well, I play in a polka band. I go and play weddings and bar mitzvahs and all this stuff, and I get 25 bucks a night. And I go, you're kidding. My dad was making 30 bucks a week as an optician. You get 20 bucks a night, so why don't you come with me, learn a few things on violin. I said, I don't want to play violin. Okay, learn them on guitar. So I learned Rebel Rouser, which is basically a polka. You can polka the Rebel Rouser, the Dwayne Eddy thing. And I learned guitar boogie and a couple other things. And I learned sleepwalk. And I go and I play these weddings, and I come home with like 50 bucks. I'm making more than my dad. I'm 15, I'm 16. And then he says, now, then Gary Peterson says, now we can play the high school dance for nothing because we've got money in the bank from playing the wedding. So one weekend we'll go to the countryside in Winnipeg and play a wedding on a farm where they put you up for night. And you, you played Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. There was a bride's party, a groom's freakout party, and then the wedding on Sunday, whatever. So we start to play rock and roll. Uh, I got asked to play rhythm guitar in a band in... Oh, a little bit slower. So the first two, it's just the two of you. Two of us and one other guy who knew rhythm guitar. Okay. And he would sing the songs. Okay, and you were playing on your acoustic guitar? My electric guitar. Okay, so... I didn't have an amp, but this guy had an amp. Okay, how did you switch? You said you ordered the acoustic guitar <coughs> from Sears. How did you get an electric guitar? Same thing, Sears. My electric's no good. I sold it to a kid in my classroom. I bought it for 34 I sold it for 29 bucks. I put that towards the electric. I got the electric, which I still have to this day. Wow. Which is the same kind that Jimmy Page plays, the little thin black Dan Electro or Silvertone guitars, it was called. Right, right, From right. the catalog. Beautiful sound. I've still got it today, and then that's like 60 years later, 70 years, 50 okay. years later. So in any event, you have this friend who's got an amp. He's going to play rhythm guitar. Right. And you can plug your guitar in there. Right. And then what are your first gigs? Weddings. Then I get a call. We hear you can play guitar. We hear you're really good. We have a, we have a band called Ellen and the Silvertones, who then became Chad Allen and the Reflections, and we want you audition for rhythm guitar. Here's an album. Here's an EP to learn four songs. And it's wait, wait, obviously taking violin lessons, you could read music. No, no, no. That was that's one another reason I quit. I would go to this teacher. She'd open this thing which I called Chopin. It was Chopin. I want to play Chopin again. I really <laughs> like that song. My mother loves that song. <laughs> oh, it's not Chopin. It's Chopin. So my teacher was beautiful. It was a lady t-shirt she was great she'd put my music in front of me she'd put it in front of her and she would play it and when she played it i could play it she said now you try to play it i would play it exactly like her she'd go well that's amazing practice it for a week and say why would i practice it for a week i already know how to play it okay here's two more and she'd play them i'd go and practice them for a week and i would look at the notes and i'd see that they would go up and down it's kind of a clue like you're going like louder or softer like for talk, right. like visual clues and she said i think you're good enough I want you to audition for the Winnipeg Junior School Symphony. It's 84 kids. 
It's at the school called Calvin High, which is where Neil Young went to school. So go there Saturday morning. You're going to audition for second violin. There's the soloist, and then you're, you're going to be playing harmony to the soloist. There's four violins, two violas, a couple of cellos, and a, and a bass. I go there to the audition. I'm thrilled. We start to play a song, which she has played for me, so I know the song. But when it gets to a certain part of the song, I play the wrong note. I'm playing blues on a violin. We're playing Tchaikovsky or something, da, 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 that kind of thing, right? And um, suddenly there's tap, 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 and the whole symphony stops. And the conductor says, second violin, bar 32. It's an E natural, not an E flat. Let's take it from the top. I have no idea what this guy's talking about. He's talking Russian or Martian to me. I have no idea what he's saying. I don't even know what bar 32 is. I'm playing by ear, heart and soul and by ear. We play it again off the top. I make the same mistake. He stops and he says, second violin. Could you please play me an E on the violin? It's an open string. I play it. I'll play it up high. I'll play it up high. Now I could play an E flat. I didn't know what he was talking about. In, so now there's 79 kids bullying, laughing at me. In tears, I pack up my violin. I go home. My mother goes, how did it go? I said, I quit. I'm never playing again. The next night is when I saw Elvis on TV and said, OMG, what is that? That's what I wondered. That's insane. That's wild. I don't want to worry about an E or E flat. I just want to play with like a feel and have people go nuts. I want to go crazy when I play the music. I don't want to have to stand there and do this Royal Conservatory kind of thing. That was it. Never, oh, never. Okay, so then you hear about Chad Allen. They want you to play rhythm. They rhythm say, guitar. Send, the, send, the, the, send the EP, you learn those songs. The EP is, is The Shadows, Cliff Richard's backup band, like The Ventures, instrumental band. So I'm learning the chords. But of course, in my head, I'm hearing the lead guitar. Right. I go to the rehearsal. The lead guitar player breaks a string. I finish playing the song. The whole band is looking at me going, you play better lead than our lead guitar. Do you want to be lead guitar? I said, yeah, that's why it came. <laughs> I play lead, man. You know, I knew all the rhythms. Um, so then I became the lead. We got the record shaken all over. A little bit slower. Oh. So Chad Allen, had he and made the reflections. Any, did he did, made any records before you got involved? No. Okay. So how we, did you get that record deal, if you even know? We had a DJ. In those days, everybody was a Dick Clark. Right. So our local TV guy had a local TV show called Teen Dance Party. He then said, we're playing at so-and-so community center tonight. I'm bringing Chad Allen and the Reflections. We were named like Cliff Richard and the Shadows. Right. Chad Allen and the Reflections. And so we, we'd go and play the was, I got to ask, was his real name Chad Allen? His real name was Allen Cowbell, K-O-W-B-L. Okay. So he changed it to Chad Allen to be like Chad and Jeremy. We want to be British. Right. We're in Winnipeg. We want, to, we want to be the British invasion of Winnipeg. Here comes Chad Allen, and we become the reflections to be like the shadows. They would get a cease and desist notice from a lawyer who represents the reflections who had a hit called Just Like Romeo and Juliet. Can't use love, the name. I love that song. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but we go, well, we can't use the name. We send in Shake On All Over, which we recorded by Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh. A little bit okay. slower. So you got the DJ. How do you get a record deal? We just sent it blindly to Quality Records in Toronto. Every record we got in Winnipeg was on Quality Records. They were a big company in Toronto who leased records from Chess, um, RCA, everybody. So they were Canadian label and they would lease the masters. And put, so every record I got was on Quality Records or Rio Records. So every Chess thing I got, of Muddy Waters and Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry, they were all on Quality. So we look up the address, it's 1180 Birchmont Road, Scarborough, Ontario. You send in your tape. We okay, get it. Okay, well, how and where did you make the tape? The same guy, the teen dance party guy, his name was Bob Burns. He becomes our manager. 
They have a recording studio just like this with one microphone in. We get a record from a cousin in England called Shake On Over with Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. We played. It's fantastic. We played the dances. Kids love this guitar riff and bass riff. We recorded it one night. We sent it to Quality Records. We get a telegram back. This is before we could even right. afford long distance. We right. get a telegram back saying, this is a smash. We want to release it. We need a B-side. And what's the name of the band? We say, we don't have a name. We've got to cease and desist. We want to put this out. This is the beginning of the British invasion, 63, 64. This sounds very British. And it sounded like Joe Meek, the Tornadoes, you know, Telstar, with all right. the echo on it and everything. And um, so we're just going to do 50 copies with a white label, put Shake All Over and put Guess Who under it. They sent it out to 50 stations. Nobody knew we were guys from Winnipeg. They thought it was British. They played it was number one in Canada. Then they find out it's the punks from Winnipeg. It's Chad Allen Reflections. That got leased by Florence Greenberg at Scepter Records in New York, was top 20 in Billboard, and we're still in high school. We had no idea what was happening. It was amazing. Well, I have to ask, did you make any money from it? We got asked to go to New York. The answer is yes and no. We made some money, but it was called pacification money. What kind of money? Pacify you. Oh, pacification well, money. Well, <laughs> okay. yeah. we get a, a silver record for half a million record sales and no royalties. And um, so I'm in there and I say to Florence Greenberg, who, you know, owns Scepter. Right. She wrote Soldier Boy. She manages Sherelle. She managed Dion Warwick, her and Paul Cantor, like a whole thing there. And we got asked to do the Kingsman Louis Louis tour. The Kingsman were on her label as well. So we're doing the Kingsman Louis Louis well, tour. Well, you're, but you're still in high school. I quit. How old were you when you quit? 19, 20. Okay. I flunked a couple of years because of guitar. Okay. When I discovered guitar, I was like, this is it. I don't care about school. Okay. What do your parents say about that? You'll never make it get a backup. My backup plan, my plan B was stick to plan A, be a guitar player. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Never to put it that way. Backup plan is to stick to plan A. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I stuck to it no matter what. And people have said to me, what would you be if you weren't a successful musician? And I would say I would be a musician. Not unsuccessful, but this is what I did since I was like five. I played music. I get joy out of it. It's my whole life. I know when I hear something, I remember it. I have a phonographic memory. So I'm trying to learn guitar. I play a Chuck Berry record, Elvis or Chet Atkins. I play it through once or twice. It's in my head. I figure out the notes. I can play it. I don't need the notes. I just figure out where it is on guitar. So I was very blessed that way to have a phonographic memory. Okay. So then you on tour with the Kingsmen. Yeah, phenomenal. Dionne and the Belmonts, the Kingsmen, Barbara Lewis, Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. Unbelievable. Whole summer. Rock and roll tour, East Coast, New York, Philadelphia, all the beaches, all the beaches. Okay, places. so you went by bus? Yeah, in a big bus. Well, I have to ask, because certainly by the end of the decade, there were legendary escapades on the road. So on your first tour, were those escapades there too? They were there, but we were very innocent kids from Winnipeg. I remember I loved being in the back of the bus with Dion and the Belmonts. Because they were like doo-wopping in the back of the bus. It was just like amazing. The original Belmonts. And we grew up on that. And uh, so it was pretty amazing. And then we play a club, I think, in Albany, New York. And they said, you want to come in a club? And I don't drink or smoke or nothing. So, like, I'll go in and have a look in a club. Like, and I'm under 21 or whatever. So we get into this club, and there's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful women there. And these guys all get a chick. And I just go back on the bus and wait. And then they come in, and they're really upset because the chicks they've got are men. It's a tranny bar, and that's <laughs> the first time I see a gorgeous woman, I'm going, wow, this, is, uh, this looks like Marilyn Monroe or Jane Mansfield, and I found it, it's a guy. Do you know what I mean? Like, 
And so the and Belmont guys are there freaking out. Like, we got this chick, we got our hand up her, her dress, and guess what? A surprise party, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Lucky so, you didn't participate. No, and then I also saw these guys taking a cigarette with little tweezers and pulling out some of the tobacco and putting in something else, some white powder or something, and then putting in the tobacco and doing a whole package of cigarettes and then just smoking it all day. I didn't know what this was. We're like innocent kids from Winnipeg, you know what I mean? And uh, that went on all the time. And then we get to New York after that tour because we were such a good high school band. We played what was on the radio. To play these high school dances, right. you went and played what was on the radio. So you played Ray Charles and, and Elvis and the Beach Boys and the Beatles. You played everything, and the Shirelles and everything. So Florence Greenberg managed and wrote for the Shirelles. She also had a connection to the Crystals and the Ronettes. So us white guys got to back these three and four black chicks all over New York City, which was fine in New York. But you go to Chicago or somewhere and race riots would start at our dance. Cops would come in with guns and tear gas, and there would be blood baths, and it was absolutely horrific in 65, 66, the segregation. We'd pull into a gas station. Down south, they'd come out with a shotgun and shoot in the air. You can't come in here, you guys, with those. The black girls go to the back door. You guys come in the front door. It was, and we, hadn't, we didn't know this in Winnipeg. When you're in Winnipeg growing up, and it's pretty much all white, and a black moose to town, you idolize them. They are Diana Ross, they are Ray Charles, they're Jackie Robinson, they're Joe Lewis, the Brown Bomber. We thought black people were like something really super-duper special because we only saw the famous ones on TV and, or in our hockey trading cards or our basketball card, baseball cards. And so it was, like, it was a real shock to us. So that whole tour was a big eye-opener for us. We'll take a quick break and come back with more of my conversation with Randy Bachman, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. I love having musicians in the studio, like Paul Rogers of Bad Company and Nancy Wilson of Heart. This week on the podcast, we have Randy Bachman with stories galore about his humble beginnings playing the violin in Winnipeg to playing arenas around the world with the Guess Who and Backman Turner Overdrive. Whether you come for the music or conversations about the tech business, be the first to hear next week's episode by subscribing to the podcast on TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, or your podcast player of choice. While you're there, please be sure to rate and review. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Randy Backman. Okay, let's go back to Winnipeg. So what happened? You said what happened when you saw Elvis. What happened when you saw Be- the Beatles? Similar kind of thing, Cha- a world-changing event. Um, suddenly, every guy in every band could sing. The drummer in the Guess Who, Gary Peterson, sang Ringo songs. I got to sing George Harrison songs. The other guy, Burton Cummings, or the other guy, Chad Allen, before he left, and then we got Burton Cummings when Chad Allen left, uh, would sing the Paul and John songs. So all my life I've been singing George Harrison songs, hence my new album, By George. Okay, we'll save that for a while as we're getting the history. Now, you talk about Winnipeg being a little Liverpool. Yeah. Did you know Neil Young? Did you know Joni Mitchell? Yeah, yeah. And how did you come to know them? Well, when you're playing at community center and you have a big Gretsch guitar like I had and an echo machine and an amp... Everybody came to see you, to look at your guitar and your amp. They didn't like, care yeah, about you. That was a big thing. I, mean, we used to, I grew up 50 miles from New York City and used to go in your high school years, go to Manny's, just to look at the stuff. Right. 
I mean, you go to the show. I was, it's just amazing. We were fascinated. Right. So every Saturday, I'd get on the bus. I'd go downtown to Winnipeg. There was a two-block stretch there where there was an Eaton's, which is kind of like a Sears, and a Hudson's Bay, which is like another Sears. Two blocks in between were all music stores and clothing stores. We would go to one, get chips and gravy. That's all we can afford. Meet Neil Young, meet Burton Cummings, walk down the street, stand at the window and stare at the Fender guitar that Buddy Holly played on Ed Sullivan last week. They wouldn't let us play it. They knew we didn't have any money. We just, they wouldn't, couldn't even go in and try it. We would just look at the guitar and dream. Look at it sideways, look at it this way, look at it that way. Look at the orange Gretsch that Dwayne Eddy played on bandstand and Chad Atkins played and Eddie Cochran played and just look and dream at the guitars. Okay. And finally, you can afford a guitar. So, so I got an orange Gretsch. Neil Young would come to see me play my orange Gretsch and he bought an orange Gretsch. When he did a gig with the Squires, he had to call us and say, I don't have an amp. Are you guys playing next Friday? Can I borrow the amp? Yeah, we'll bring it down. We'll watch you play. We'd go watch Neil and the Squires play. All through Jim Kales, who was a bass player in the Guess Who, his concert amp, which was two channels and two inputs. So it had four inputs. So you plugged your microphone in, the singer sang into one, you put the bass in the other, the guitar in the other, and you had a set of drums with no mics, and you went and played a high school dance. On one amp? On one amp. Well, how big a speaker was there in this one? There was four tens in a, okay. in a Fender concert amp. Okay. And if you turned it just right, you sounded pretty good. There was no stereo then. This was like the 60s. Everything was mono. When it was a record player, they had one speaker on the stage. And so then, did you, was Neil Young singing then? He sang a song called I Wonder, which was horrific. And I sang a song called Stop Teasing Me, which was horrific. But his forte was guitar playing, and he copied Hank Marvin from The Shadows. He had a song called Sultan and Aurora. I wrote a song called Made in Lingland, the same Gretsch guitar, the same echo. We were like parallel twins there doing each the same kind of thing. But he was on one side of town. I was on the other side of town. And then what about Joni Mitchell? Oh, she came to Winnipeg quite a few times. When Chad Allen, after we finished the Kingsman tour and went back to Winnipeg, we weren't the top band anymore. We had been gone two months. There's all kind of high school dances, all the lakes around Winnipeg and resorts. The next bands up were tied for number one spot. Burton Cummings and the Devrons, Neil Young and the Squires. Okay, and then... What do we do? We're dethroned. Chad Allen says, nobody knows who I am. I'm not Chad Allen anymore. Everybody calls me guess who. I'm sick of the name. I'm going back to college. He goes back to University of Manitoba. And where is he today? In an old folks home. Wow. Yeah. Um, so he goes back to how college. How do we eliminate the competition? I know how. I called Burton Cummings' mother, who went to school with my dad. Hello, Rhoda. Can Burton come to our meeting? Sure. I ask him to join the band. He breaks up the dead runs. He joins the Guess Who. We go to, we go to Regina to play a gig. Joni Mitchell's playing the new Prairie Princess, the new Gordon Lightfoot, the new Leonard Cohen, the new Bob Dylan. Female, blonde hair, big blue eyes, great guitar, great voice. We go to see her at that gig in Regina. We meet Joni Mitchell there. Okay, anybody else I'm missing who made it from Winnipeg? Well, since then, there's been a lot. Lorraine right. McKinnett's come through there. Right. Tom Cochran came from Clear Lake through Winnipeg. Right. Just like you say, they come through London. They really don't. They come from Birmingham or, or Brighton or something. Or in Toronto, you say they come through Toronto. But Shania Twain's so, from Timmins. You, okay, know? you come right. through a little town to the big but town. But why Winnipeg? I think it was the, the end of the train. Like I said, when your parents or grandparents came as immigrants and they had 40 bucks... This will get you to Winnipeg. And by the way, if you're in Winnipeg, if you're Ukrainian or Jewish, go to that end of town. We don't like you guys. You're mm -hmm. dirt. All the British people, you go here. This is the uppity part of town with all the nice trees. You guys are way out there. So we, all, we, we went out there. But like I said, we grew up eating dirt and pierogies and things like that and borscht and all that stuff. And we were happy. Okay, so you... But music is what kept it all together. The house parties, 
the, like I said, the bar mitzvahs, the weddings, all this stuff. What, the kid's 12 and this is his birthday party? And he gets thousands of dollars? I want to be Jewish, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> like, wow. Okay. I'm getting a yo-yo in a Superman comic, and this kid's getting a thousand bucks to start a business when he's 19, you know what I mean? So you convinced Burton to be part of your band. Yeah. And you've decided to continue under the moniker Guess Who. The guess Who, yeah. And so then what happens? Um, we do a song called His Girl. We get a call from England. We like this record a lot. It's getting played in Canada. We want to sweeten it. What does that mean? We record it in three tracks in Minneapolis. It means we'll put it on three tracks, on a four track. We want to add a fourth track of a flugelhorn and strings. What? We're a rock band. Well, the Beatles are doing it. So are the Fortunes. Remember, you got your troubles. I got mine. It had the Burt Bacharach right. flugelhorn and stuff like that. Well, okay, we'll do anything for a hit. Right, right. Thing but, already... but a little bit slower. You had that deal with the, the label in Toronto. Yes. So now when you're recording in Minnesota, who's paying and what label is it? We're still paying. We have no idea about royalties. Okay. We went to Florence Greenberg and said, we've had a hit with Shaken All Over. They said, here's 400 bucks, 100 bucks each. That was it. Okay, but who, when you made this second record, it was getting play in Canada, who released it? Same label, Quality Records. Okay. But they sent it to... Right, These are the guys who said, we're going to call you, guess who? Right. They sent it to England. Philip Solomon, who owns part of Pirate Radio, he owns King Records. We also know he's part of a, what can I say, a family syndicate kind of thing. And so we go to England without a contract. So we're so excited we get on a plane and don't even sign a contract. We're going to be the new Beatles. We're from Winnipeg, blah, blah, blah. Well, he sends a check so you can go? No, no. So you're going on your own money. We go on our own money. We buy new clothes, suits to look like the Beatles. You remember they had the Beatles? Yeah, of course. Call all the suits and all this stuff. We buy new gear. We're 40 grand in the whole. We fly to England. Our first day there, we go to meet Philip Solomon at King Records. We find out he's part of the... Pirate Radio Station. And Pirate Radio was very blatant. We don't need to play your record, but we'll sell you commercial time. Our commercial time is a pound a second. You want 100 seconds played of your record? That's why records there were all two minutes long. You want 120 seconds played? Give us 120 pounds. We'll play your record between four and six. They played it like a commercial. They're playing it offshore and everybody in England listening to it because BBC's not playing nothing. They're 50% homegrown right. talent and it's all... Frankie Vaughn and all this weird stuff. And, you know, Cliff Richard getting played and all that stuff. Britain has a 50%, whereas Canada has 30%. Can, Connor, Brit Con, right. if you want to call it. Germany has GermCon 50%. So it helps the local talents. So we paid money through Philip Solomon, and we owed him money. Then we go there. He says, okay, I want you guys to sign a contract. You get 400 pounds a week. Each? What? Each? What do you mean each? For the band, 400 pounds. What? And I'm going to put you on tour in Australia. This, I'm going to send this record to Australia. It'll be a hit. This is a song called His Girl. And um, so when do we get royalties? What don't you understand about 400 pounds a week? What do you mean? How long is this contract? Three years. You get 400 pounds a week for three years. Where does all the other money go? It goes to pay the machine, the expenses, the this, the that. Really? Take or leave it. You don't have a contract. You're here in England. You're in the hole. We looked at each other. We'd been through enough by then. We just walked out. We didn't sign the contract. We had nothing. On the way out, we meet a guy named Jerry Dorsey, who's also desperate. We're standing outside. We don't know what to do. We're in Soho and his, outside of his offices. 20 minutes later, Jerry Dorsey comes out. And we go, what happened? He said, I took the deal. What? It's only for three years. They're changing my name to Engelbert Humperdinck. <laughs> 
Okay. We're in England. We're in the whole 40 grand. We've got rooms at the Regent Palace Hotel on Piccadilly. I say to the band, okay, I've got a few bucks saved on my own money. How much money have you got? We just don't want to go home with our tails. When we left Winnipeg, you can see this in a video. Guess who leaving for England? The whole cities are waving. It's like the Beatles landing in Winnipeg. They're waving goodbye to us. You're going to make it in England. The guests who are going to be big. The whole city sees the radio stations there, the TV and everything. We can't go back a week later going, we got shafted, we got screwed, blah, blah, blah. So we call up Tony Hiller, who runs Mills Music that published Shaken All Over. Hi, we're the guests who? And he goes, oh, we know who you guys are. The, you the, made us a lot the of Johnny money. Kid family's very happy over you guys because then after that, the Who did the song and everybody redid that song over and over again. And you were the first guys to do it after Johnny Kid and the Pirates. What do you do in England? Well, we just met Philip Solomon and we've got shafted. He said, oh, I know Philip. He used to work for him. I know you got shafted. Why don't you come in and be, uh, I've heard your stuff. Why don't you be a demo band? I've got to cut some songs by two of my songwriters. You cut these two songs. I won't pay you, but bring two of your own. And you can record, then you can go home and say you recorded in England. So go to Regent Sound. We don't have anything to record. Neil Young's given me his demo from Buffalo Springfield. We record Flying on the Ground is Wrong for Neil. We're the first band to ever record a Neil Young song outside of him. We recorded a, a, a silly song I wrote called There's No Getting Away From You that never makes it anywhere. We record the song called This Time Long Ago that's very much like the fortunes. You got your troubles, I got mine. Got the flugelhorn in and the strings and everything. And we can go home with a master. We go home and send it to Quality Records, and they go, fabulous, great. They put it out. We have a hit record in Canada. So we turn this defeat into a triumph. We've, done, we've recorded at Regent Sound, where the Beatles just recorded. We got this song this time long ago. We've done a Neil Young song, Flying on the Ground, which is our follow-up single. Quality Records doesn't know what to do with it. Our contract expires. We're a free band. We're 40 grand in the hole. We come back. We're going to break up. Air Canada needs their money. Lowe's Music Store needs their money because we've gotten stuff on credit. We have no money. I get a call from a friend saying, hey, I'm the producer of a television show called Let's Go. And all you got to do is play the top 40 music. It's a half an hour long. Just got to play the top 50 in Billboard, a top 100. We'll pick the songs each week. Can you read music? And of course I say yes. Of course. Even though we can't. And I say, who's writing the charts? And he goes, oh, Bob McMullen. I knew Bob McMullen. He was like... Winnipeg's George Martin, he helped all the bands, but he wrote little charts for string, string quartets and everything. So I get his phone number and I call him and say, Bob, have you written the charts? This is like on a Thursday night. We got to go on Friday and play five or six songs for Larry Brown. Have you done the charts? And he doesn't know he's not supposed to tell me. We're supposed to show up cold and play Three. the charts. Right. He says, well, I've got this one done and that one done. And I got last train to Clarksville done. I got this done. I'm going, okay, and I'm writing them down. Right. I run out and buy the six records. Burton and I learn them, write out the chords. We practice Saturday and Sunday. We go in, they put the music in front of us. We play the songs. Larry Brown comes and goes, wow, not only can you read, play these songs, you sound like the records. And he goes to me, you can't really read a damn thing. <laughs> You're right. He said, but you got the job. So that paid us 1800 bucks a week as a band. And then we come back, and we're now the kings of Winnipeg again. We get all the high school dances. So besides getting 1800 bucks, so you're getting 250 a night for a high school dance. We're still making two or three or 400 on the weekend. We pay off our debt. We get out of hole. We get a call from Jack Richardson, who's producing Things Go Better with Coke. I call these Coke commercials, the Ray Charles and other people singing. And he's and in Toronto. He's in Toronto working for McCann Erickson, an ad agency, but he's the music producer. So he calls it, and he says, will you guys do a thing for Coca-Cola? I go, yeah, we want to do a Coke commercial. He says, no, no, I want you to do a whole album. I want you to do one side of an album, and I want the other band called The Staccatos, 
who later became the five-man electrical band who wrote signs on right. all those great hits. They're Canadian? Yes, they're from Ottawa. So we want to do an album that you can only buy with 10 Coke caps from Coca-Cola and a dollar. So it'll be 99 cents, 10 Coke caps. We'll call it a wild pair. So you're half the pair. The other half of the pair is the staccatos. You and Burton write five or six songs, and I'm going to get Les Emerson and that band to write five or six songs. Well, they put it out. It sells 80,000 copies. Wow. He goes, this is like a gold album. We couldn't get a gold album because it wasn't sold through record stores or Canadian Record Association or anything, but we had a hit record. Then Jack Richardson calls us up and goes, your stuff's pretty good. I watch you every Thursday on, on Let's Go on CBC, which is kind of like the BBC there. So we had the show for two full years where our producer comes to us and goes, it's getting a little redundant. The charts then were very slow. Now you're on the charts, it's gone in two weeks. There your song would last two or three or four months, so we're playing the same songs over and over. He said, why don't you write your own? But they've got to be good enough to fit in between Vanilla Fudge doing You Got Me Hanging On and Hey Jude and the Supremes doing, you know, right. Stop in the Name of Love. It's got to be good enough to fit in or I won't put it in the show. So Cummings and I start writing. Jack Richardson hears a song, These Eyes, and he goes, wow, I want, I'm going to mortgage my house and I want you guys to come to Toronto and record this album. So keep sending me all your demos. So we got the demos. They're recorded on TV. We're just pulling them off TV, sending them reel-to-reels. He compiles an album. We go to Toronto to record. And he says, I've got a guy with ears to mix your album. I said, we all have ears. What are you talking about? He said, this guy has ears, man. You don't know what I mean by ears. Well, who's this guy? Well, he's 20. He's a genius. His name's Phil Ramon. So we said, okay, we've never heard of this guy. He mixes the album. It's great. We go to his studio, A&R Studios in New York. We record these eyes. That thing you hear with Phil Ramon doing that. That song still sounds great in the radio. Phil Ramon is amazing. And I met him earlier when I was at, with Florence Greenberg because he did all John Warwick songs with Bert Bacharach. Once the demos were done in Scepter, they took them over to him. He transferred them over. And Bert's there leading the orchestra and doing all that stuff with John Warwick. So I knew Phil, and he was really a great guy. Then we had to hit these eyes. And then Cummings Okay, on. a little bit slower. How'd you write it? Um, at the Joni Mitchell concert in Regina. Do you know these stories? Because you're, no. you're asking me the right questions. No. At the Joni Mitchell story, uh, the Joni Mitchell gig at the 4D in Regina, it's sold out. Everybody's coming to see this Prairie Princess because she's headed to L.A. She's signed to Asylum Records or something. And she's under the wing of Elliot Roberts and David Geffen and Neil Young and Crosby Stills and Nash, that whole thing. The place is sold out, and I'm there with the band. Burton Cummings is there. There's an empty table with reserved on it. And in walks these two gorgeous chicks, a blonde and a brunette, and everybody goes, wow. They're clearly not from Regina. They got T-shirts on. It's the University of Arizona, University of Utah, and they look American, and they're wearing shorts, and they're beautiful. One's blonde and one's brunette. I'm a very shy guy. My dad had five brothers. I have three brothers. I didn't even know how to talk to a girl. So I say to our road manager, Jim Martin, who we call Jumbo. He's a big guy. He's also our bouncer, but he drove our truck and lifted our gear. Jumbo, can you go over to that table, see those two chicks, see if you can sit at the table, talk to the, brun the blonde and not the brunette, and if you get lucky, call me over to the table and introduce me to the two of them, and then get away from the table. He calls me over. I'm, Joni's up there singing. She's just got married to Chuck Mitchell. Her name's Joni Anderson. She right. just got married to Joni and Chuck Mitchell. She's up there singing these great songs. I sit at the table. Jim Martin leaves the table, and I say, are you together? They say, yeah, we're sisters. Well, can I take you home? Yeah, our dad dropped us off, and you could take us home. So I get enough guts driving them home that night to say to the brunette, I have tomorrow night off. Can I t do you want to go to the movies? I have a night off. Sure, okay. What do you do? I play in a band. I go to pick her up. I'm early. It's my first date. She's late. 
I get ushered into a room that's like this. There's a, pian- a, a plant, a little piano, and a couch. I've had no training. And there's a piano. I've had no training on a piano. But when I got to be seven or eight, playing violin was a drag. My parents brought my next brother, the ultimate polka instrument, the Lawrence Welk accordion. So my brother's <laughs> playing accordion, and he hated it. Because when you're little and you're five and they put an accordion on you, you look down, you can't see it. Right. You see, there's keys there, and there's oompa buttons here, and you've got to move his left hand to pump. He hated it. I used to get him to lay down, put the accordion side with Neil Pump, and he'd pull it this way. I'd sit in front of him, and I learned to play in the key of C. So with nothing to do in this room, there's no TV, there's no radio. I go over to the piano and go boom, 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 boom. Oh, really? It's key of C. Boom, 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 boom. And I sing, these arms are waiting to hold you. She comes down, we go on the date. I show it to Bert and he goes, well, we can't start it with these arms. Let's start it with these eyes cry every night and make these arms long to hold you again as the second line. And we write the song in 15 minutes. And I've got all these jazz chords I've learned from this jazz guitar player. When you get into these eyes, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of chords in there with weird bass yeah. notes that are jazz bass notes and stuff that I never, ever thought of would be in a pop song because pop song then was like... Three songs. It was Louie Louie and Hang On Sloopy kind of thing. These Eyes has a lot of incredible jazz chords and modulations where it changes. And we wrote that in 15 to 20 minutes. And when Phil Ramone heard that, they did the strings that came out. It was like our, a million-selling record. And we got our gold, re- okay, our well, okay, gold record from Dick guess, Clark. The guess who was on RCA, right? Yes. How'd you end up on RCA? Well, Jack Richardson started his own little label in Toronto called Nimbus 9, named after the clouds. And we had a hit in Canada. And then he sent it around just like Quality did, sending it to England. He sent it to the States. And Don Berkheimer, Rocco Laganestra, New York heard it, said, wow, this is number two in Canada or in Detroit. Rosalie's playing it in Detroit. She was a legend then who'd played in Detroit and, I mean, Windsor. And they'd hear it in Detroit, then Cleveland, and, and it would get played in the whole Ohio area. And then Pittsburgh, I mean, you know, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, and then played in New York. And so let's sign this band. So we went down there. And we signed with RCA. And what about a manager? Um, I pretty much managed the band at the time, being the oldest guy, the oldest brother, and looking after the band. Um, before I quit to go on the Kingsman Louis Louis, Louis Louis tour, I didn't want to get a job. My dad, and I'm playing in a band and making 150 bucks a week. My dad's still making 65, 50 a week as an optometrist. And um, he'd say, son, I got you a real job. Oh, really, Dad? What is it? You're going to sell shoes at Baddest Shoes. <laughs> okay. Show up at 4.30, and you got to work till 9. I say, I have a gig at 9. So I'd go there and work because my dad set up with his friend, which is next door to his optometrist shop where he's selling eyeglasses. And uh, I'd go there and work till my break, which was 7.15. And when I got my break, I would take it, and it would not go back. I'd go to the gig. How long did that last? One night at Bad right, Shoes. Right, exactly. Two weeks later, son, I got you another gig. I know you didn't like the selling shoes one. And the reason I didn't like selling shoes one, it was like, it was boring. It was like $3 an hour. When you're a new kid, they give you all the worst people. So I would get this baba that would be 250-pound woman from the farm with bunions on her feet and all this stuff. And I'd have to measure her feet and put her on. Or else they give you a great-looking chick. And when you're 17 or 18 and a good-looking chick sits in front of you with a short dress and you've got to measure her feet and legs, you get a, a thing happening in right. your crotch, right? And you've got to stand up, right? And so I, I had enough of that job. And so the next, next one is at uh, Simpson Sears Menswear Suits. So they, they're trying to teach me to upsell, and I hate doing that. I hate that to this day. 
when the guy comes in for a tie, tell him it looks good and then show him a suit. Sell the guy a suit, then sell him a pair of shoes and a shirt. I hate doing that. Um, so that lasted until the break. And then we get a, Shake and Over becomes a hit. I quit school. Okay, let's I go back a year later, pay off my parents' house, buy my dad a car. He says, you don't, you don't need a backup plan. I said, my backup plan is stick to plan A. Plan B is stick to plan A. That's what I'm doing. You're listening to my conversation with Randy Bachman, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Hope you're enjoying this episode of the Bob Left Sets podcast. If you want to see Randy and me in the studio, we post videos, photos, and sound bites from our guests as they join me here. Visit at TuneIn on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, more of my chat with Randy Bachman on the Bob Left Sets podcast. Okay, so now uh, Phil Ramone mixes the record. You have a hit in Canada. It ends up being a huge hit in America. I remember these eyes. I was taking geometry. They have imaginary numbers. We say these eyes. But in any <laughs> event, uh, so what happens? It's weird. We signed with RCA Records. Right. They say to us, you can't use A&R Studios anymore. Phil Ramon Studios, which is amazing. I mean, Simon Garfunkel did all their stuff. Yeah. There. You're now with RCA, you've got to use RCA Studios. And guess what studio we got for you? The one Bing Crosby cut White Christmas in. Aha, uh -huh, you're thrilled. Like, what? Uh, right. That's from like 1940. Are you kidding? Yeah, but you're going to love it. Bing cut there. Oh, brother. We go and we can't get a drum sound. This is for the whole first album of the Guess Who was done at A&R Studios with Phil Ramon. It, every song sounds wonderful. It's it's not dated. Everything's wet. The room had a great sound. He had a great reverb and all that kind of stuff. Great machines, great ears. Like Jack said, this guy's got ears. We start to cut the canned wheat, our second album. And the reason we use wheat was from, it's wheat country in Canada. Right. Like prairies where they grow all the wheat. And uh, so our song, our album's called Canned Wheat. The album sounds terrible. And we say to Jack, we can't even get a drum sound in here. It's dry. It's an anarchaic chamber. It's like, it's terrible. And he says, I have a plan, because I know we're not going to get a hit record out of this studio. The sound isn't right. Radio's going to want to hear the same thing. So let's tell everybody at RCA, I've never told this story before, by the way. <laughs> okay. Let's tell everybody at RCA, you have a gig this weekend at something beach out in Long Island. Right. I forget what it's called. Jones Beach. Right. You got a gig at Jones Beach. You got to pack up your gear Friday night at two o'clock, get in the car, drive to Jones Beach. You'll come back Sunday afternoon. You'll start recording here Monday morning. He has booked AR Studios. He has picked two songs from Canned Wheat that we're going to do with Phil Ramon. We go in there and set up. Phil Ramon gets a song, bada boom, bada bing. In an hour, he gets a song. We cut laughing and she's come undone. They go on Canned Wheat. If you listen to Can We today, the whole album sucks. It's very, 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 very dry. And these songs jump off the turn, the, off the vinyl. It's undone and laughing. They got this sound that was the film. Absolutely, those sound. were the hits. We also had a song on there called No Time that was so terrible, we recorded it again for the American Woman album with a, with a better sound, and it was a hit for us. Okay, so then obviously laughing is a hit, and she's come undone. It's kind of a, you know, underground classic hit yeah. in America. And then what happens with the third album? We, well, we caused a strike at RCA. They found out the engineers played the album. They're mastering at RCA. What are these two songs? This isn't our sound. They find out that we snuck into A&R Studios. We have what's called a NABET strike, National Association of Broadcast Engineers, Technicians. There's a strike. It's called the Guess Who Strike. 
These guys won't work in the studio. So we have to settle the strike. We've got to go talk with union leaders and all this stuff. So we say to RCA, we can't record here anymore. We need to go to A&R. You can't go to A&R. It's got to be RCA. Okay, build us a studio. So they go to Chicago and they build us a studio because we're still living in Winnipeg. We're driving all the way to New York. It's 3,000 miles to record and then driving home on weekends. Do you know what I mean? It's crazy. And uh, so they build us a studio in Chicago to our specs and to Jack Richardson's specs. We go to a great engineer there called Brian Christensen and we record there. And that's the sound of the American Woman album. Okay, so the album after Can Weed is the American Woman. American Woman. Okay, how do you write American Woman? Uh, we are still living in Winnipeg. We're crossing the border where gas is cheaper. We always go to the same gas station, which in the old days, the gas station was a glass tube with the leaders in it. You could see the gas going down. It wasn't a digital kind of thing. And so we'd be sit there watching the gas go down, filling up our vehicle. And this farmer who would always fill up his tractor there and his threshing machine would say to us, where are you guys going now? And I'd say, oh, we're going to Boston. We're playing a pop festival with Joan Baez and Richie Havens. And next time, where are you going? San Francisco to play with Frank Zappa and the Mothers. Where are you going this time? We're going to Texas to play a gig. And, and I said, but before we go down there, the guy at the border, I couldn't understand. He talked like Boss Hogg on Dukes of Hazzard, a big, fat guy, border guy with a real southern drawl. And they kept saying, hey, boy, before you go down to Texas, boy, you got to go in this building over there, boy. Make sure you go into that building, boy. I said, I didn't understand the guy. He said, we got to go into some sort of service building. And I don't know what he meant. And the guy filling the gas tank said, did he, did he say selective service? And I said, maybe that's it. It's a white building with an American flag. He said, that's selective service. Do you know what that is? I said, I have no idea. He said, it's the draft board. They drafted, this is the Vietnam War, 67, 68. They drafted my son a year ago. He's dead. My nephew turned 18 last week. They got him the next day. He's in Fort Bragg. They're training him to go fight in the Vietnam drone. They're going to get you guys. You're between 20 and 30. You're healthy Canadians. You've got green cards. That means you can work in the States, pay tax in the States, and be drafted and fight for the States. What? Do yourself a favor. Go into town here. Pretend you're getting some chips and drinks for the road. You already got your gas. Keep driving. When you get to this highway, turn left, go up through Duluth, go back to, through Minnesota, Duluth, Minnesota, get into Canada, turn in your green cards, don't come back to the States till the war's over. Everybody's protesting the war, it might be over soon. Wow, I call Texas, we don't go to Texas. We want to go to Texas to see Buddy Holly, as if he's going to be there waiting for us. Right, right, right. Or Roy Orbison or somebody like that. We get to this place in Toronto, I call an agency, this is Valentine's Day, we're going to play a Valentine's Day dance in Texas, February the 14th. We get to Toronto early in the morning, and I say, I call the agency, and I say, do you have any gigs? This is Randy Bachman from the Guess Who, and we're, we need some gigs in Toronto. These guys said, yeah, when do you need gigs? I said, tonight. What? We're in town. We, we, we're draft dodging from the States. Really? He said, well, it's Valentine's Day. Everything's booked, but we just had a cancellation. One guy's got laryngitis in the middle of the winter in Canada, and he can't sing. Do you go, can you go play a curling rink tonight in Kitchener-Waterloo? And I say, how much does it pay? He says, 400 bucks. And that's what we were going to get in Texas anyways. So I say, okay, we go and play this curling rink. You know what curling is. Right, the, of the course. Everybody knows that was a result of the Olympics, yes. Okay. They put plywood on the ice. It's freezing in there. It's like it's minus 10. Um, plywood's on the ice. Everybody's there in toques and parkas. We're playing a three-hour dance. We're playing Beach Boys and Beatles and all that stuff. And I break a string. I didn't have a tech, a tuner, a spare guitar, a roadie. I had nothing. 
you broke a string. Burton Cummings says, Randy broke a string. We're going to take a break. Talk amongst yourself. There's pop, free popcorn over there. DJ playing records. Randy's changing his string. So I'm changing my string on the guitar in a 59 Les Paul. And I'm tuning it up, tuning it up. As I'm tuning it up, I'm going, dun, 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 The whole audience stops talking. And I go, wow. I've got to remember this riff. And I keep playing it. I'm on stage. I'm on my knees in front of Burton's piano, tuning to the piano. I didn't even have a tuner. You tuned to a piano when you had a piano right. player in those days. So I see Gary Peterson, a drummer. I get on stage. He starts playing the riff. I see Jim Cale. Burton finally comes on stage and goes, what is this? I said, I, I'm making it up, but just sing anything. And there's something about when you don't write music or, can't, or the way to remember something is to put something silly to it. Like when Paul McCartney wrote yesterday, he called right. it scrambled eggs. Right. The next day he had to find syllables that fitted scrambled eggs, baby, how I love your legs. If you ever saw him and Jimmy Fallon do it, it's a hilarious skit. They also write the second verse, which was never done. So he gets scrambled eggs and it's yesterday. So Burton is singing the first thing that comes to his mind, which is American woman, stay away from me. It's the Statue of Liberty. It's that Uncle Sam and the Stars and Stripes. Uncle Sam wants right, you. Right. That's what we were terrified. So he sings American Woman, Stay Away From Me, four times. I solo, he sings it again. We go to play it the next night. We can't remember it. I start out tuning my guitar again until I fall into dun-dun-dun, and we do it again. Then somebody records it. We played for Jack Richards, and he goes crazy. This is number one record. Do you realize when you say, we don't want your war machines, it's an anti-war song? Radio has been told not to play any ant. They won't play Country Joe, one, two, three, what are we fighting for? All they're playing is Gary Sands, uh, Sergeant Barry Sander, fighting men, right, right. the Green Beret, all that kind of stuff. They're only playing war songs, not anti-war songs. And this is going to be number one. It gets to be a number one album and single. And then the DJs realize it's an anti-war song. It's too late. They can't not play it. Okay, that's a monstrous hit. I remember listening to it to the first night I got stoned. Yeah. That and Led Zeppelin too. So... But then the band breaks up. Well, I leave. Why? I had been with them at that point nine years. The drug culture came in. I, I didn't smoke, drink, or do drugs. I also had a thing called a gallbladder problem that every night I'd have a gallbladder attack. And I didn't know what it was. You're on a 90-day tour. And you go to the hospital at night. They say, come in in the morning. We're going to give you the stuff to drink and take an X-ray. Well, I'm in Philadelphia tomorrow. Then I'm in Pittsburgh. Then I'm in Boston. Well, you, you need to st stand still and go and see a doctor because every night I have blood both ends in the bathroom. Incredible pain. We have gallbladder. It's like somebody putting a knife in you and just turning it and turning it. And this lasts two or three hours. And my roadie, Jumbo, the same guy, would take me to a hospital. And they say, you've got to keep this guy in here or you've got to send him home. So I just called my doctor who birthed me into the world in Winnipeg and said, I'm coming home. I need some tests. The band had a week off. This is amazing happenstance. The band had a week off. We're playing Westchester, Pennsylvania, playing in a church. In a church, the stage is like this high. It's a low ceiling. So you can walk right up to the stage. We're playing on stage. This band, you can tell it's a band. These five guys come in. They look as weird as us. They're not the normal guys in the suits and ties dancing with girls at the church dance. They're wacko, weirdo musicians. So they're standing right in front of us. They're watching every note we're playing. When we're all done, this guy comes and says, Hi, my name is Bob Sabellico. Um, this is my band. And we play all your stuff, all the guests. We love your, your music. It's great. 
but I can't figure out she's come undone, all the jazz chords. And some of the chords in these eyes, I can't figure them out. Will you show them to me? I said, sure. He said, come to our house later. My dad's a rich contractor. Our whole band practices in our basement. We have a PA, a Hammond, a B3, all the amps are there. We go to a party at his house. I teach him the songs. That night I go home and have a gallbladder attack. They say, you got to go home. The band has a week off, five days off, and then they pick up again. And then we got to go play the Fillmore East, the closing of the Fillmore, which I want to play. I go into my doctor. He says, you have a gallbladder problem. We'll schedule your, your surgery for then. But all you can eat until then is skim milk, saltine crackers, and jello without sugar, like gelatin. That'll fill you up. Don't eat anything else, because if it's got fat or sugar, your gallbladder will so you got a bunch of gallstones. So I go to the band and say, look, i got to stay home. i got to stay on this diet. But if I stay on this diet and I don't have any attacks, I want to come and play the Fillmore. And the band says, well, we've got gigs. We've now gone from 750 bucks a night to 10 and 12 and 15,000 a night because of American Woman hitting number one. We've now gone from opening the show to ka-ching, we're closing the show like the Beatles when they were like opening for Roy Orbison or somebody else. You go to headlining the show. So I say to the band, out of my own pocket, I'll pay Bob Sabellico because, you know, he knows all the songs. We went to his party. I taught him Undone in these eyes. So rehearse with him for Fridays. Go to his basement. You stay here. I'm flying home to Winnipeg. Bob Sabellico plays with the Guess Who for 10 days. He's famous. He plays for 10 days. Then he goes back to his band. They come back to Winnipeg. They get a couple of guys to take my place, Kurt Winters and Greg Lasky, who I knew really well. I go back and play the Fillmore gig with them. The Fillmore East, which was my last gig with the Guess Who. And I say goodbye. But on the airplane there, I'm so hungry, I take a drink that the stewardess gives me of apple juice. I get to the Fillmore. I go in and play. We're doing two sets of the Fillmore. In between the sets of the Fillmore, I go in and I have a gallbladder attack in the bathroom, which is the most disgusting thing you'll ever see in your life like the worst gas station of all time, this is at the Fillmore. There's stuff all over the floor. I mean, everything's all over the floor in there. So, But when you have a gallbladder attack, it's like breaking your leg or something or getting a burn or getting punched in the face. Your body suddenly kicks in this adrenaline and everything feels wonderful for a while. So the second set at the Fillmore, I go out there, my gallbladder attack's over, I wipe, I'm cleaned up, and I'm on adrenaline, and I am rocking like Clapton in the Free World or Hendrix, and everyone's looking at me. The band is, we already had the meeting that this is my last gig, I'm out. I am playing my ass off. It's incredible, and it's the Fillmore. It was just incredible. Okay, so do you have your gallbladder removed? No. Okay, do you still have your gallbladder? Yes. What do they do? Well, I'll tell you the story. Uh, I finished the Fillmore. I go home. The word is out that I'm leaving the guess who. My house is getting egged and toilet papered. Okay, just to be clear, other than the gallbladder, what is your motivation for leaving the band? Uh, I had a son, Talmadge. I had a baby daughter on the way. I'd been on the road 90 days, and we we're facing another 90-day tour. I married a very, very beautiful woman from Regina that I met at the Joni Mitchell concert. And well, it had, was one of those two girls? Yeah, I married her. We had six kids. Our oldest is Tal, who had the hit She's So High, and he's now in my band playing with me every night. So Are you is, still married to her? No, no, we got divorced and lived happily ever after. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but uh, so you say, and what do you plan to do now that you're out of the band? I just plan that's it. I, all I do is get healthy. So a couple of months, and we leave Winnipeg because my house is getting egged and toilet paper and everything. It's all everywhere. And people are bringing their garbage on my lawn and lighting it on fire and it's stinking and so we got to get out of town. My, the brunette, her name was Lorraine, her family's moved to Saskatoon which is where Joni Mitchell's from. 
I get an offer from a band in Saskatoon to produce them. Why not? I'm not doing anything. Right. I've learned how to produce from Jack Richardson and Phil Ramone. Are you kidding? These are like the best guys in Canada and the States. So I go and start working with this band. And a really strange thing happened to me. I had a gallbladder attack again. Unthinkingly took a sip of orange crush that you get, you know, that's all that syrup. And it started up again. And um, I don't know if you're into this or your readers are into it, but, and I've never told this story. I don't know why I'm telling you this. I got faith healed. So these guys come in, they're missionaries, and my brother-in-law, who's also a missionary, they anoint my head with oil, they put their hands on me, and they say, you're, you're healed, you're fine. This is the Friday night I've had the gallbladder. I'm set to go in the next morning. I go on Saturday morning. The doctor says, blah, blah, blah. It's a long weekend. I said, look, I've had x-rays. I've got 16 gallstones. It's killing me. You've got to take them out. He said, I don't want to take them out unless I can see your x-rays. So he's trying to call my doctor on a long weekend. It's Saturday morning. There's nothing shaking until Tuesday right. morning. The Monday's a holiday. He says, I've called your doctor. They're going to send your x-rays. There was no FedEx then. They're going to send your x-rays on Air Canada on the airplane. I'll send somebody to get them. It was like a messenger service. Meanwhile, I'm going to take my own x-rays. So I drink this barium junk, gets in, goes in me. I go and get my x-rays taken. He said, you don't have any gallstones. I go, what do you mean? You don't have any gallstones. Maybe you've passed them. Maybe they're stuck somewhere else. So we're going to give you more stuff to drink. It might be in your intestines or somewhere else. I stay in there for two days drinking the stuff. There's nothing in me. My x-rays come Tuesday morning. He looks at them. He looks at the x-rays taken. He says, you're fine. You can leave the hospital. You don't have any gallstones. What happened? I said, I was given a blessing. I, I guess I was faith healed. I was in such pain when these guys said it. I believed it. My brain or their brain or something. Or I did feel some incredible power when this was happening to me. I've seen it happen on TV. I didn't believe it. I'm healthy. I go back home at 8 o'clock every night. I'm downstairs playing guitar. I've done this for like 15 years, playing guitar. My wife says to me, you've got to start another band. You're driving me cuckoo. I wake up at 3 in the morning. You're not in bed. You're downstairs with the headphones on playing guitar. So I start another band. Neil Young comes home, plays, says, I've broken up with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I'm on my own. Well, actually, I've broken up off the Sprinkle. They want me to join Crosby, Stills & Nash. I'm trying to get my name added, so it'll be Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Plays me a couple of tracks. He helps me get a deal. I start a country band like Poco, like Buffalo Sprinkle, called Brave Belts. Neil gets me a deal with Reprise. I go down there. I do two albums with Reprise. It doesn't sell. It's at the tail end of the country rock thing, just before the Eagles burst out. I get Fred Turner in the band, who I know from the early Winnipeg days. We, be, we change. Brave Belt 3 becomes Backman Turner Overdrive 1. Okay. But Brave Belt is on Reprise. Yes. Why do you think it wasn't successful? Um... I didn't want to be a second-rate guess who. Burton Cummings is one of the greatest voices in rock and roll, like Elton John, an operatic voice, three and a half, four octaves. He can sing a ballad. He can sing Old Danny Boy and Make You Cry, like true to his Irish roots. He can scream like Eric Burton, we got to get out of this place. He can scream like Robert Plant. He's got a great voice. What could I do? I had a Neil Young voice. I sang Brian Wilson parts. I get around. I sang the high thing. I wasn't a singer. And um, so rather than be a second-rate guess who, I'd rather be a 10th-rate guess who and not even compete in the pop market. Do country music. Get a pedal steel. Be like Poco, Richie Fiore and Poco, who left Buffalo Springfield. Be like Neil and Stephen Stills and Manassas and whatever they were doing. Do what you want to do. Sing harmony, play blazing rock and roll guitar, 
Nobody would work with me. I was blackballed after I left the guest who I had to produce myself, pay for my own sessions with my royalties that were coming, very meager royalties from these eyes and laughing and undone and all this stuff, and um, produce myself. Uh, Neil Young got me the deal, came to Brave Belt 3. Mo Austin and Don Schmitzley called me and said, we can't keep you on the label anymore. It would be too much of a favor to Neil. We've already done you a favor. You're not meeting our bottom line. We're going to go with America and Gordon Lightfoot, who we just signed, a Canadian. And uh, you can't produce yourself. Like Gordon Lightfoot's taking Lenny Warrenker. If you take Lenny, we'll keep you on the label, our, t our Templeman. I said, no, I'm producing myself. Nobody knows what I'm doing. I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm just, I'm floundering here. I'll find it. They said, we're sure you'll find it. I find it when I get Turner in the band. Chad Allen leaves again. He left the Guess Who? And then he leaves Brave Belt. Because they started with him. He's the only guy who would play with me in Winnipeg. He leaves the band. Fred Turner comes in. Suddenly, Fred Turner's got this Harley Davidson, John Fogarty voice. We start doing Creedence Clearwater. Everybody's up dancing. Our country music, everybody's yawning. Like, when's the next rocket? When are you going to play American Woman? I didn't want to play any Guess Who stuff. I wanted to start from scratch. <clears throat> so Fred Turner's in the band, and we get heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier. And there was a, a revolution in music at that time. We'd go to a club, and the guy'd say, okay, coffee houses are over. People aren't sitting listening to lyrics anymore. They're up dancing to Proud Mary and, and Jumpin' Jack flashes. stuff. You've got to write stuff like that. So I start writing like The Who and The Stones and Creedence Clearwater. Fred has this big voice. I sing Relief for Fred every once in a while. I sing like David Crosby, Neil Young song, where you don't need a big, powerful voice. You just need kind of a cool voice that gives the other guy a rest. You're a relief pitcher, a relief hitter. And uh, we become back return overdrive. Now you switch to Mercury, right? Yes. How does that happen? When Mo Austin let me go, I had the album cut on my own dime. I had no money from Reprise. I'm paying the band a salary out of my royalties, and I'm paying my own cornflakes and gas bill and my rent, and now I've got two kids and a wife. We're getting near the end. I'm sending out reel-to-reel -reel tapes. I have 26 refusals. Beautiful letterheads. Jack Holtzman at Electra with the butterfly. Herb Alpert with the trumpet, the silver trumpet from A&M. We pass, we pass. Passes from everybody, passes. A pass from Mercury Records in January. Before that, I had met Charlie Fatch, who was the guy who signed us. Uh, and he said, you got to put your name on the record. Never mind trying to hide out, be calling Brave Bell. Put your name on there. Radio guys will recognize your name. They might get a spin. They might play it because they'll recognize that you've written hit songs. So I'm trying to find, put my name on there. We call ourselves Backman Turner. There's me and my brothers and Fred Turner. We're called Backman Turner for a while. People think we're like Seals and Crofts or Brewer and Shipley, a guitar and a mandolin singing one toke over the line. We're blowing coffee mugs off the table. We're playing this powerful rock and roll. So um, we cut the, uh, the, I send BTO3 again to Charlie Fatch. And he calls me up and I hear side one, cut one. Give me your money, please. It's a Saturday morning for you. You're working Saturday morning? Yeah, I'm listening to your record. I just got back from Me, Them, and Can and that whole thing. And um, my desk gets cleared off at the end of January. I look at all the new stuff. And a guy named Bud Scopa, who you might know. I know Bud. Was, was his assistant clearing off my desk. And when he put everything in the trash can from last year, because I'm coming back with a new budget, one tape never fell into the, the trash can. And written on it was your name, Backman, in red Sharpie. So I'm playing it now. Is the whole album like this? He's playing side one, cut one. He goes, Charlie, the whole album's like that. It's in your face, four and a half minute rock and roll. Listen to Fred Turner sing. And he says, I'm flying to, to L.A. right now. 
to play stuff for Erwin Steinberg and all the guys in L.A. on who we're going to sign. We just got Rod Stewart, who had, like, Maggie May then came out. And because we've lost Uriah Heep or some other band, we need, like, a rock, a heavy rock band. And he says, how much you got into the album? And I said, man, I've got, like, $98,000 of my own money in salary and studio costs, and I've been flying all over trying to get this mixed with Phil Ramone, who then was out of the game, and I had Shelly Yakis and... and um, Elliot Shiner, who was Phil's assistant then, who are now big dude producers, working on it with me. Um, so Charlie says, I want to sign it, but I can't give you all your money back. But I'll give you a five-album deal, so you've got to recoup a little bit and recoup a little bit and recoup a little bit. And so we're going to ask you for another album in 18 months. So we're going to put this one out. So he puts it out, and it gets a modicum of airplay. We get a call from a guy named Scott Shannon, who you might know. Big DJ. Who's down south in St. Louis. And he says, we have a big thing planned at a drive-in theater where at night when it's dark, they play Girl Can't Help It and Rock Around the Clock. But at from 6 o'clock on, we're serving hot dogs and pizza. There's a stage in front of the drive-in theater project the screen, and we're having bands play live. And we had so-and-so booked, but so-and-so's been in a car accident, and he's dead. I think it's Dwayne Allman. Can you come and play? Well, we don't have anything to play, but I've got your new album, and if you agree to come and play for Casey, K-A-S-H-C, with the pig on it, uh, I'll play one of your tracks from BTO1 every hour. So when you get here in three and a half weeks, you won't, you won't have a hit song. You'll have 12 hit songs. Everybody will know every song. Really? Okay. And by the way, you're playing for nothing. We don't care. We drive in there, we play. Everybody knows every song. We're, and then the next station in the chain play, the next station in the chain play, next... Charlie Fasher and Erwin Steinberg called me saying, we're getting airplay, we're selling albums. You've now hit a million albums. What's going on? You've hit two million albums. Guess what? We want another album. In that first 18 months, instead of one album, we did a third album. It was number one, Not Fragile, with the Ain't Seen Nothing Yet on as a number one single. BTO2 with Let It Ride and Taking Care of Business on was number 18. And BTO1 was number 48. We had three albums in the top 50, three songs in the top 50. It was like... What happened? It was like two years suddenly. But we went on the road 90 days at a time. Took a week off, cut the album, 90 days. Took a, and obviously, Lorraine fell out of love with me, and I didn't know my kids, and I got divorced. We'll pause here for a brief moment and get right back to Randy Backman. For those who don't know, I'm primarily a writer. Go to leftsets.com where you can catch up with my daily screeds. In addition to reading my commentary on music tech in the world at large, you'll be the first to find out when we've published a new podcast. Go to leftsets.com and sign up for the newsletter. More with guitar legend Randy Bachman, recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Let's uh, go a little bit slower. First album with uh, Turner, you get some action, but there's no national hit. No. And then Charlie says to me, you know how to write hits? Write a hit. Don't write these album cuts with two solos and five verses. Enough of this stuff. I'm having this problem with Rod Stewart. He didn't want a single. Led Zeppelin, they don't want a single. They want to sell albums. Guess what? You can sell albums and singles. And know what that means? More tickets at the box office. Instead of playing 2,300-seater auditoriums, you're playing 20,000-seater hockey arenas and stadiums. That's the difference between a hit single. Okay, so the second now, BTO2, right. is the breakthrough record. Right. Singles. Right. It has We Ain't Seen Nothing. You ain't seen no, no, that's the third one. Okay. It has Let It Ride and Taking Care of Business. Right. Okay. So how do you write Taking Care of Business? That starts in 1967 in Scepter Studios in New York. 
we are recording at Scepter. Florence Greenberg is the boss there. Her son, Stanley Greenberg, is the engineer. He's blind. So he's twiddling these knobs, getting a great sound of Dion Warwick's demos, and we're cutting real records there. Dion's doing her demos with Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Ashford and Simpson were also pitching songs there. Everybody, this was the, the alternative to the Brill building there. So Paperback Writer comes out. We love it. But it's pretty much a copy of Johnny Be Good. The day in the life of an average guy who learned to play guitar in a cabin made of earth and wood, Johnny Be Good. And I'm a paper, sorry, Madam, will you read my book? Took a year to write, will you take a look? Right. I want to write a thing about Stanley Greenberg, who's a blind engineer who comes to work every day with a white button-down shirt, a tweed tie, a tweed jacket with patches on the elbows, you know those leather patches, tweed pants and brogue shoes. This is August in New York. It's 90 with 90 humidity. We're all wearing cutoffs and flip-flops. Stanley comes to work every day dressed. I said, Stanley, why do you dress this way? He says, I want to look like George Martin. He's the best producer in the world. Because he's right, and you do look like him. I've met him. That's exactly what he wears. Okay, so and I'm write- writing a song right. that George Martin should produce. And I'm going to call it White Collar Worker, and I'm going to write it about you, Stanley Greenberg, because you always wear a white button-down collar. I'm going to call it White Collar Worker. It's going to be an exact copy of Paperback Writer. So when you, when you leave the studio every night at 10 o'clock, why do you leave at 10 o'clock? Because we're just getting rolling as musicians. We come in at noon. We're used to playing from 9 to midnight. That's when musicians are really juiced up. Is I take the train home. I don't live in New York. I can't afford to live in New York. So I'm taking the train home. I go to Grand Central Station. I go, you're kidding. Can I come with you? I want to write a song about you. I need to see what you do. So he says, okay, don't try to help me. Okay, I've been blind all my life. I have a white cane. So how do you get to Grand Central from here? They're on West 54th. Um, he says, I count steps. I go, you're kidding. This is my first experience with a, with a vision-impaired person. And he says, don't try to help me. So I go out and I said, so what? He says, well, turn right here, and I count 585 steps. Really? Then I listen for the tweet. And you're, tweet, tweet, the, the crosswalks. Then I walk 385 steps that way. Then I listen for the tweet, tweet. Then I walk 800 steps that way. It's Grand Central Station. I am amazed. This is quarter after 10. The streets are empty. It's like Vanilla Sky. You know, the Tom, the streets are empty. Everyone's in the Madison Square Garden still like quarter to 11. Or they're in the theater still 10, 30, or 11. So the streets are empty. So we get there and I say, very disappointing, Stanley, nothing to write about. I have no fodder. I have no, not even a hook line except white collar worker. That's going to be white collar worker, just like paperback writer. I said, so when do you come in? He said, I take the 815 into the city. I go, oh, you get up in the morning. From your alarm clock's warning, take the 8.15 to the city. When do you get here? He says, I get here about quarter to nine. And the, the train smells incredible because all these women are putting on makeup and perfume. He can't see what they're doing. Uh, you get here at quarter to nine. He said, yeah, I walked to work to start my slaving job to get my pay. Like, well, there's the first line. You get up in the morning from the alarm clock's warning, take the 8.15 to the city. There's a whistle up above. People pushing, people shoving, and the girl's trying to look pretty. If your train's on time, you get to work by nine, start to slave a job to get your pay. If you ever get annoyed, look at me. I'm self-employed. I like to work at nothing all day. My father would keep saying, son, you work at nothing all day. What is that music business? You don't do anything. And I'd say, dad, you don't understand. It's all in my head. I'm writing songs in my head and doing riffs in my head. So I play that verse, but my it stops after that verse. And we go, white-collar worker, white-collar worker. And I played for the band, and they gag on the song. So your verses are great. They're great Johnny Be Good verses, but you got to get rid of this white-collar worker thing. So it never makes it on 
Wheatfield Soul, Canned Wheat, or American Woman. It never makes it on Brave Belt 1 or Brave Belt 2. It never makes it on BTO1, which is Brave Belt 3. We're playing a club in Vancouver. Now Fred Turner is our lead singer. The first album is a, is a success. As far as an album goes, it's gold, headed for platinum. And we're headed to play a club. And people think you're really rich when you have an album on the charts. Right. But you're paying off all your studio bills and all your loans. You're paying back your father, your grandmother, and everyone who gave you 20 bucks or whatever. So we're playing six nights a week, five 50-minute sets a night with 10 minutes off. Start at seven, end at one. It gets to Saturday night. Fred Turner says, I can't sing anymore. My voice is shot. You got to sing the last set. I go, what? I got to sing the last set? All I sing is like the high part and I get around and... I can sing Bob Dylan. So um, I say, okay. Um, Bob Dylan has a song called She Belongs to Me, but I'm not going to do it that way. But Rick Nelson had a much better version, and I'll do that. And the club owner's going, last set, Saturday night. I turn up the heat. I give everyone free pretzels and popcorn. They got to buy booze. I'm selling. This is the last round. Get them up dancing. I start She Belongs to Me. It's really bad. Nobody's dancing. Santana had a song out then called Oye Como Va. Right. I don't know any Spanish. I know Ukrainian. I start to play. Dun, dun, dun. The minute you start that, everybody's up dancing. And I sing Oye Como Va, Farogis, Bueno, Vamos, a, <laughs> a bowl of borscht. Oye Como Va. I'm doing all these lyrics. Everyone's laughing who understands me. The rest of the people are drunk. Right. They're dancing. They don't care. And I'm wondering, what am I going to do next? They're up dancing, and the club is going, Okay, okay, and he's going like this. Keep it rolling. TV talk for doing the don't cut it, keep it rolling. Keep them once they sit down, it's the battle to get them up again. Keep them dancing. So a light goes on in my head. On the way to the gig that night, a DJ's on the air and he says, There's this Daryl B on C Fun Radio, and we're taking care of business. And I go, What a song title. And I write it down. I have a songwriting kit in my car, a McDonald's napkin and a smash crayon. <laughs> Left over from one of my kids, and I write down, taking care of business. you got to write these things down, or you forget them. The simple, like I wrote down, let it ride. I wrote down, you ain't seen nothing yet. Because like the great dream you had last night, when you say, Randy, i got to tell you about this dream I had. And I say, what is it? Gee, I kind of forget. It's, it's gone, faded away. So I write it down. It goes on the shelf next to my heart of a few of my favorite things, which are the lyrics to White Collar Worker. And in the middle of Oye Como Va, with everyone dancing, and me wondering, what am I going to do next? This light bulb comes on and goes, the band is your hostage. They're on stage. They've said no to this song for four albums. All you got to do is turn around and say to them, play this song. You're on stage. There's 300 people dancing. I stop. Where it goes, dun, 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 dun. Oi! I turn around and go, follow me, play these three chords. And they go, what? And I start, dun, dun, dun. And I sing my verses. They get up in the morning. When I get to the hook, I don't stop and do white-collar worker. I sing, taking care of business. It fits. Taking, and then I get to the next time I say the band sing it. They sing it, and I answer them. Every way, every day, it's all mine and working overtime. And I go, oh, my God, thank you. The angel <laughs> of song has shot another arrow in me, just like when I did American Woman on the stage. And you get that feeling of energy. And here's a gift from the gods, you poor sod. You've been working eight years on this song. Guess what? Here's the final piece of this puzzle. And we did that song for 30 minutes. It ended the set. We'd stop the song. The audience would sing. They felt the energy on stage. My brother would keep the kick drum going, and the song goes and goes and goes. We go to record it a couple of weeks later. All the Vancouver studios were booked. We go down to Seattle. There's a brand new theater there started by Danny Kaye, the actor, and Lester Sill, who owns about six radio right. stations. Uh, Lester Smith. 
So it's a less, uh, Case Smith Studios. And so we go in there and we're recording the album. And Fred says he wants me to sing Taking Care of Business as a good relief song for him and stop doing the Santana pierogi song and the bad Bob Dylan. Actually sing a song that's on our album. So I sing Taking Care of Business. So it's a studio just like this. We've been in there since about 11 in the morning. It's now 1 o'clock the next morning. We've been in there like 14 hours. There's a knock at the door. We're set to go home. I sang the song once. It speeds up and slows down. We don't care. It's a relief song. I hide it on side two near the last cut on side two. So nobody will hear it till the end of the album. There's a knock at the door. I open the door. There's a guy standing there with three pizzas. Big frizzy black beard, frizzy black hair, an army cap, fatigue cap, army suit on. He said, did you guys order the pizza? The guy's about six foot four, six foot five. I say, no. Tried on the hall. Steve Miller's cutting Fire Like an Eagle album there. And then War is cutting Why Can't We Be Friends on there. Everyone's using this new studio because Lester Smith owns six radio stations. Right. And if you cut in his studio, guess what? You got to play it on six stations. And right. Pat O'Day with the big DJ there. You got to play in Seattle, Tacoma, Bellevue, all, all the way down to Portland and everything. So he goes down the hall, gets rid of the pizza, comes back, knocks on the door. And I say, yeah. Pizza's gone. He said, yeah. I said, what can I do for you? You look like you want something. He said, I've been listening to this song you've been playing for the last 20 minutes, taking care of business. And it sounds like it could really use a piano. And I said, yeah, I know Elton and I know Little Richard and they're in LA right now at a big party. I'd love to get them on. He said, I'm a keyboard player. I don't deliver pizza till the end of the month when I can't pay my rent. Would you give me a shot? I go, what? We've been here 14 hours, man. The piano's not even tuned. He said, I don't care. I said, okay, I'll give you a shot. Who am I not to give a guy a shot? I don't mind when somebody gives me a shot. Okay, here's your shot. Throw in a mic, close the lid. He said, what do you want? I said, give me some Elton John, some Dr. John, some Little Richard. Like, make it a potpourri. Then maybe we'll pick a style. Then you do the whole song in right. that style. He plays it once. I say, good enough. Go home. I'm going to wipe it out the next day. He goes home. He goes delivering pizza. We go back to sleep. Charlie Fatch, the guy who signed us, flies in a day early. He's supposed to come a day later. Comes in a day early. What do you, why are you here daily? Because I'm going to L.A. to play them your new album. Well, we're not even done. Play me the album. I want to hear the single. I play him Let It Ride. It goes, great, wonderful single. The guitars, the harmonies, that's great. Gets it, uh, taking care of business. I say to the engineer, don't play the piano track. We haven't even heard it back. So we listen to the whole side one. He hears Let It Ride. He's happy. He says, you've got to do an edit that because it's very long. There's a breakdown. I said, yeah, I can edit that. Because if you didn't do an edit, then radio did their own. Right. You had different singles everywhere you went. Um, so... Halfway through the song, the engineer pushes up the fader and in comes the piano and Charlie leaps out of his chair and goes, what on earth is that? BTO with the piano, that is amazing because none of you guys will listen to me. You are guitar, bass, and drums. ZZ Top, guitar, bass, and drums. Doobie Brothers, guitar, bass, and drums. Almond Brothers, guitar, you know, everybody's guitar, bass, and drums. You want to be different? Elton owns real estate on Top 40 Radio and AM Radio. Elton is everywhere. Let me hear the whole track. We back it up, we play him the whole track. He goes, that's amazing. That'll get you Top 40 airplay. That and Let It Ride, are you kidding? Let It Ride starting with harmonies with you guys and the jangling beat and heavy guitar and light guitar. And then this comes out as a party track. TCB taking care of business. Amazing. Who's playing the piano? And I say, a pizza delivery guy. And he says, no, seriously, who's playing the piano? I say, Charlie, a guy brought pizza here last night. He asked to play piano. I let him play piano. He's gone. I have no idea who he is. Where'd you get the pizza from? I said, I didn't know. We didn't order the pizza. <laughs> so he says, oh, so I go down and knock on the door, Steve Miller. Steve, oh, where'd you get the pizza? I don't know. I didn't, we didn't get it. I go down to War's thing. It's like walking to Cheech and Chong's basement. 
There's a cloud of smoke in there. I can't even see these guys. Where'd you get the pizza from last night? They say it is last night, man. It's still last night. Nobody knows where the pizza came from. A maid has come and cleaned out the studio, right? Because when you're in a studio, you basically order Chinese and pizza all the time or, right. or Greek or something or spaghetti and you eat and you, you don't have to wait to be served. The food comes in, you eat it in like five minutes, the wolf pack eat, and then you're back to recording again. So I go to the lady at the front of the studio and say, here's the yellow pages. Well, you start at Antonio's. I'll go halfway through at Mario's. Phone every pizza place within two blocks of the studio and see if they have a pizza delivery guy that looks like Fidel Castro. He had a big, frizzy black beard and hair and wearing an army out fatigue outfit. I get lucky on my third phone call. Yeah, we have a guy like, that looks like that. Can you tell me his name? No, we can't give employees names over the phone. Oh, how do I get this guy? Well, do you want a pizza? Yeah, yeah, we'll take a pizza. <laughs> when does he start work? Six o'clock. Okay, send him with a pizza. What do you want? Send yesterday's pizza. We don't care. We just want to meet the guy. He comes in. His name is Norman Durkee. That's the piano here in Taking Care of Business. One take by the piano. That's why one verse is like Dr. John. The next one like Elton John. Octa. The next one's like Little Richard. It's all this potpourri of piano style. Norman Durkee did do work at that studio that I didn't know, but he did commercial work there because he was a musician. He'd work wherever he got gigs. Um, so we find out his name. He was in the union. We give him credit on the album. That's the piano you hear. He then went on to be Bette Midler's musical director on her first North American tour. And when I played with Ringo Starr Ulster Band in 95, we toured the world and came back. We ended here in L.A. at the, at the Greek Theater. And um, the L.A. Philharmonic plays there, and the pianist was Norman Durkee. Really? Yeah. Okay, and then Yancey... See, that's a long story. But no, but that's a great story. Oh, I love the story, and it's amazing. Right, so how about You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet? That is a reject song. I'm producing BTO. So I always had what was called a work song. We'd go in and I'd want to get a really good kick drum, then a good snare, and you'd move the mics around, crawl around, get a good bass on. Then I'd go and add a nice, clean guitar track, a nice jangly rhythm track, and then this powerful sledgehammer in the face, powerful guitar thing. That's what heavy rock was, basically pop music with heavier courses, like bigger, heavier things. I, I could make Sugar Sugar into a heavy rock song just with guitar sounds. So I have this work track. One of my brothers, the one who played accordion, that I got to right. learn these eyes on, stutters. So I don't know if you, you've got any brothers, even if you've got sisters. I actually only have two sisters. You tease each other. Well, that's for sure. You put each other on. You short-sheet each other's bed. You tie your laces and knots so the kids can't put on their shoes, right. you know, that kind of thing. So me and my brothers always played pranks on each other. So my brother who stuttered, I think I'm going to take this work track where the guitar's out of tune and it's totally a wreckage of a track, but it's got the heavy, powerful guitar and uh, uh, you ain't seen that. It's got the nice jangly thing. I'm copying Dave Mason, only you know and I know in the verses. Right, right, of course. And um, I stutter over it. We mix one cassette and put it aside. Charlie comes to hear the album. It's not fragile. Here's not fragile. He goes, wow, this is the beginning of something new. This isn't heavy rock. We can call this heavy metal. This is incredible. And he hears Roland on the Highway and a couple other songs. He goes, those are pretty good. But I'm looking for a song now to be in the top three on top 40. Taking Care of Business was great. It's like top 10. You ain't, um, Let It Ride, number four. I want to get you up to in the top one or two or three. That would be really amazing. I said, that's the album. We've been on road for 90 days. We have, we're in here for five days. We cut our albums in five days with BTO and mixed it on the sixth, just balancing the tracks on the sixth day. It wasn't rocket science with this band. Once you got the sounds, you just, we played everything right. over and over and over. And so we played the album. He goes, I need more stuff. And the engineer says, why don't you play him the work track, the throwaway track? And Charlie jumps out of his chair again, and he says, what? There's another track. And I say, Charlie, it's a train wreck. I haven't even tuned my guitar. It's out of tune. 
Okay, all our instruments are put away. I can't even redo the guitar in it. We're, we're done. And I played for him. He goes, that is really charming. It, when you hear the jangly rhythm, it lifts. It's, right, right, it's a foot above the vinyl when you hear that back. It's magical radio. Radio's going to love this. You put it on, it, it's, a, it's a morning track for morning drive. It's a sunshiny day, and you ain't seen nothing yet. I go, okay, let me re-sing it. Because there's a mic out there. I try to re-sing it. It doesn't work. It's like... <laughs> It's like Tony Bennett, baby, it's bad Michael Boop. You ain't <laughs> seen nothing yet. Son, it doesn't fit. He said, leave it the way it is. It's charming. It's never the same. I said, well, I'm copying the way my brother talks. Said, You're never going to forget or f -f -f forget right. that kind of thing. He said, just leave it. I say, okay, it's terrible. Uh, I'm going to remix that. I'm remixing it Sound City in L.A. So I go to Sound City, and I'm there, and it, the Sound City is in its heyday, right? This is the mid-'70s. And Buckingham Nicks have been in there. They're auditioning for Fleetwood Mac. Lindsey Buckingham's put his guitar through a Leslie speaker. He's blown the speaker on the Leslie, which is a little triangular horn. There's a big one in the bottom. Right. There's a little triangular horn that spins around. The speaker's not being fixed. So I said to my engineer, Mark Smith, I need to disguise my guitar. There's no such thing as a harmonizer or to retune your guitar. And there's no guitars there. I'm mixing like for three days. So I want to disguise my lead guitar. So can we run it through the Leslie? And it'll give it the swishing sound, and we'll put an echo repeat on it. So you hear the repeat, and you won't listen to that. The guitar is out of tune. We go out there, and the top speaker's gone. And I say, what can we use as a speaker? He said, all the speakers is a cone. Let's use this. He takes a cola Coca-Cola cup, jams it on the top of these wires with this little thing, and it's spinning around with a mic on it. That's my lead guitar on You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. Out of tune with a Coca-Cola, and we have a picture of this, it's like a true story, with a slap echo, and someone goes, doo, 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 doo. it repeats itself, so you're listening to more than just the guitar solo, and I stutter my way through it, there's bad Van Morrison impression there, I'm going, -la 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 -la, just like Brown Eyed Girl, and I'm having fun, it's a stupid party track, and Charlie says, this is a career song, just like Taking Care of Business, this is going to go on the album. That's the first B2 album that had the extra song, the ninth song. We only worked with four side to get about 20 to 22 minutes because it was vinyl. Both sides had to be the same amount of volume. The more time you had, the volume went down. You're dividing the space between more grooves. And uh, so we put the five shorter songs on one side. He releases it. It comes out as a single. It goes to number one in 22 countries. It's a gold single. It's a platinum single for us. And... It won an award five or six years ago from the Stuttering Association of North America. <laughs> that was the best stuttering song of all because it was about a real guy and it was done in loving fun. Do you know what I mean? That kind of thing. So that's some of my greatest hits are, are train wreck accidents. Right. Okay. Which happened. brings us to four wheel drive. You're so big and people are anticipating that. And although it is successful, it is not seen quite as the league of the pre two previous records. Right. Do you see it that way? Yeah, it came out too soon. We, we uh, me, the band, are caught in this bubble of one album in 18 months, and suddenly we've got three in 18 months, and they're all in the top 50, and you want another one? Oh, who can we copy? That's good. Oh, let's copy ourselves. Let's make Hey You like You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, a guitar intro. If that would have come out nine months later, it would have been solid. Four-wheel drive, big, powerful song. Every trucker lives at every four-wheel driver and loves that song. Right. Four-wheel drive, four-wheel ride, side-by-side, four-wheel drive. is like amazing song. It just came out too soon. We flooded our own market. We burst our own bubble. It sold millions of copies, but we were into like BTO 2 and 3, like 8 million, 9 million, a million in England, a million in Australia. We're selling 10s and 12s and 15 million albums around the world. Suddenly we just... 
we ran out of steam. And again, I don't know my wife and kids. I go home, my kids cry when I pick them up. I'm a strange guy. But had you gotten remarried at this point? No, I was still with, with my first wife. Had six kids with her. Okay, so how does BTO end? It ends with a dreaded five-letter word called disco. Or is that four letters? D-I-S-C-O, five-letter word. It was pretty much the end of every rock band. No longer between gigs, between tours, could you go home and play a club and get maybe two grand, 500 a guy for, for the week when you're home? Because you've got to work when you're home or you're spending your royalties. You're burning your, your fuel, right? You've got to keep adding to the pile of fuel. And so they would hire like a Donna Summer or somebody with a dat or you know, a player or a cassette and they would go and look good. They're a chick usually doing disco singing uh, and sing three or four songs and hire three of those a night, pay them 50 bucks each and everyone's happy, but they weren't playing rock bands. So you try to do something different. So you, the Doobie Brothers, they got Michael McDonald, they'd take it to the streets, they get horn section, all that kind of stuff. Um, a lot of guys, Rolling Stones, that I miss you, a disco kind of beat, which right. is, you know, da, 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 which is kind of cool. And I thought, well, I'm going to go back to my Ben McPeak days, my Phil Ramon days, get to get a horn section. I'm going to do my wheels won't turn instead of going dun, 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 dun. I'll be like Fats Domino. I have a horn section going dun, 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 reinforcing our stuff. The band hated it. It just didn't work. And pretty much radio had played at that point so much BTO, literally so much. Even now they play a lot, uh, which is great. I'm thrilled. You know, all these mistakes get played over and over again. I still play the mistakes on stage. Okay, so the band ends, and do you feel at this point, wow, I've been on the road for 15 years, yeah. I just want to stay home? Yeah. And you then... I start my own, I have my own studio. And did you have any desire to make it back to the top of the charts? Of course, that's my big desire. To this day... I start a band called Iron Horse. Right. We have a hit on Scotty Brothers Records, goes to number one in Italy, I go into Italy with a number one record. I am Elvis in Italy, it's incredible. <laughs> number one record. With stuttering, Sweet Louis Louise was a big hit. I come back, um, Fred Turner wants to join the band, but he doesn't want to be called Iron Horse, so we call ourselves Union. We, uh, we meet Lenny Pizzi, who's just done Girls Just Want to Have right. Fun with Sidney uh, Lauper. <clears throat> so Lenny Pizzi hears what I've done. I've got my own studio. Here's what I've done. He says, great, I'll sign you guys. We put out a double A-side. My song's called Main Street USA. That's a kind of a rap record, rock and roll rap record. Fred puts out a song called On Strike by Union. The Yankees are on strike. Our baseball's on strike in New York. Lenny Pizza's flies to New York. This song is going to rock your face off. Playing it on New York radio. This is on strike, and the Yankees are on strike, or somebody's on right. strike. I don't know who's on. Some baseball guys are on strike. It comes out on a long weekend. So the guys who normally meet every Monday morning who pick what records are going to get played, they aren't there. The substitutes are there, and they like the record, and they start to play it. At the end of the week, we're on 140 stations. I get a call from CBS Portrait. You've got to come here to New York. We're celebrating you being on the thing, but we need to have a business meeting. I go, what kind of business meeting? So I go into this meeting, and they say to me, um, we use indie promotion guys, and somehow... You bypass these guys, and you're on the radio. So we usually pay these guys some money, and the band pays them half the money. So unless you come up with the money, you're going to be taken off the playlist. And I go, what? Are you kidding? Is this like extortion payola kind of stuff? No, it's not. It's high-level 
radio promotion. These guys help us with programming or whatever they want right. to call it. And I said, look, I don't have any money. I'm going to call their bluff. I called their bluff. The record vanished. Gone. It went from 140 stations in the first four days to nothing, zero. So I was off. <laughs> I've had some great adventures. Right, right, right. So then where does that leave you? Well, it leaves me with still with a dream of writing a hit song. Um, it leaves me to right now. Um, a few years ago, got offered a record deal, which is really weird out of the blue, by a friend of mine who had brought Two North Records up in Canada, which is really a great label. They've had Bruce Coburn forever right. and a couple of other really good acts that are what you call heritage acts. They just keep recording and touring for, for right. decades. And Buffy St. Marie and other friends of mine are on there. <clears throat> and so he offers me a record deal. I get inducted into Nashville Musicians Hall of Fame. I go down there. Neil Young's there because Ben Keith has peddled steel players right. being inducted. I'm there with... Kenny Wayne Shepherds, who's fitting in for Stevie Ray Vaughan because Stevie Ray and Double Trouble are, are inducted. I'm inducted. Frampton's inducted. Billy Gibbons is there. It's phenomenal. Real Lee's there playing bass. It's, I'm in, like, my element of rock and roll guitar. And I say to Neil, guess what? I just got offered a record deal. And he says, do yourself a favor. Don't do the same old Randy Backman shit. I said, what do you mean? Don't do the same stuff. Do something totally different. Be like me. Reinvent yourself. Shock everybody. You lose some fans, but you'll get some new fans. And your real diehard fans will love this little ride you're going, this little detour. So I go back to Canada and get invited to see Tommy out in Stratford. We have the Stratford Shakespeare Festival, but every year, like a jazz festival, they'll have Stevie Wonder at a jazz festival or Michael McDonald or Steve Winwood or something. They're having Tommy. So they invite me to Tommy. I'm sitting behind... Pete Townsend and Des McCannis, who's the guy who produced Tommy. And I've known Pete for a long time. We argued over the name the Guess Who and the Who way back right. in the 60s. And he leans back and he goes, the drummer's incredible. I've got to meet this drummer. Drummer's incredible. Plays every note like Keith Moon Keith in Pinball Wizard. I've got to meet this drummer, Dale. I said, Dale is a girl. Dale is a woman. What? I said, the program says Dale Brendan. It's Dale and Brendan. I know this girl. She drums in a country band. I've written songs with them. I've done gigs with her. He said, it can't be. I said, she has her own drum school. She's been drumming since she's eight. She's got 100 students. We go backstage. She meets her. It's her. I said to her, oh, man, I want, I want to do an album with you. The, the drums you played were so Keith Moon. She's got the exact kit. She's in her own room with mics. She's got a monitor. She's watching the guy. And she's playing. It's amazing. And so I say to my manager, I want to do an album like Black Keys or the, 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 the White Stripes. Me on guitar, total rock and blues. I want to honor the British invasion of Clapton, Hendrix, Cream, and the Who, power guitar and drums. He says, you can't do it. You're jumping on the bandwagon. Get somebody else. I see a bass player, a tall, beautiful chick playing with Ladies of the Canyon, which is like Canadian's crazy horse for kneeling, but it's four chicks, beautiful long hair, and they're blazing playing rock and country rock. So I asked the bass player, she wanted to just do this one project with me. And she's wearing a John Entwistle t-shirt. And she studied at McGill. She's doing, you know, stand-up bass and reads notes, but she loves rocking out like John Entwistle. So I say, do you want to do an album with me? We'll just set up and we'll do it live in like four or five days. Power Trio, I'll show you the song. We learned it once. It's blues. It ain't rocket science. It's all feel. Out of the blue, I call a friend of mine, Kevin Shirley, who I helped out 20 years ago when he was stuck in Canada, came to produce Rush, couldn't get back into the States. I get him to do a radio show for me. I say, Kevin, you owe me a favor. He said, yeah, I do. And um, I say, what are you doing? He said, I'm doing the Led Zeppelin box set, an ACDC box set. I'm doing, uh, I don't know who he's doing, all the Scorpions or something last year. He said, but I do you a favor. I have a week off. I'll come to Toronto. Can you record an album in a week? I said, no problem. He flies in. I have these songs. I do an album called Heavy Blues. He takes it back and mixes it. Incredible. He says, I got my next door neighbor to play on a track. Who's that? Joe Bonamassa. Oh, cool. I listen to it. I go, wow. Maybe I should have some guests. 
So I get Neil Young, Peter Frampton, Robert Randolph, Scott Holiday from the Rival Sons. I get all these guys. And Jeff Healy from the grave. His wife lets me get an old track of his. Lift his, <laughs> lift his guitar off and put it on right. as a tribute to him. I have these seven guest guitar players. I mean, that's one of the best albums I did. Then the next better one is getting this idea to do my new album by George, the George Harrison album. It's the most spiritual thing that I've ever done that I feel. That's the greatest work. Put the American Woman album up there, the Not Fragile album, and put up the By George album. Those, that's my triad of greatness in my life, honestly. So this is George Harrison covers using the words, but the riffs and the melodies are different, Absolutely right? different. When it starts out, you have no idea what song it is. People play games. They have party games. Now they put on this record and they sit there betting. I can name that in eight seconds. I can name that song in 10 seconds or 12 words or whatever. And then when I start singing, everybody sings along. They all know the words to every George Harrison song. And even the guitar solos in the songs are taken from other Beatles solos and put in a different song. So in, and then I wrote the first song, Between Two Mountains, which is what I felt, how George felt going to a session with Mount Lennon and Mount McCartney with 30 gems each, and then they co-write maybe 20 each, and after they're all done and tired out, George, do you have a song? Oh, yeah, I got a song called Taxman. I got a song called Something. I got a song, you know, called Piggies or something. So I wrote Between Two Mountains. I wrote it in a daze, in a haze one night, in a weird psychedelic dream. I don't take psychedelics, but it was a really weird dream. If you got kids or little brothers or sisters, and you're asleep, you know when they walk in the room, even though you're asleep, you sense a presence in the room. Well, you're doing your father. Okay. And you wake up, and your little kid's there with a teddy bear or blanket. Oh, if you had a bad dream, come into bed with daddy. They fall asleep, you take them back to the crib. You sense somebody's in the room. So this happened like two years ago. The whole album's done. I want to get one of my songs on there. Because I've been George all my life. In every band, I've sung George Harrison songs. Right. I bought his book. I've got his paintings. I phoned his house at Friar Park when I left the guest who to see if I could join his band, which was, Clapton was in his band. There's no way I was going to get in his band. But I talked to him. <clears throat> and, and I loved the guy. I loved his peacefulness and quietness. And I loved how he dedicated the last part of his life to religion and spirituality. Same with John Lennon. War is over. You can have peace and put their career on the line and don't do commercial stuff anymore. Do songs that really mean something. And when the Beatles came to New York and met Bob Dylan, he said, now that you have the attention of the world, say something. And they started to say something. So I have this feeling in mind and I have this presence in the room and I get up out of my bed. It's two o'clock in the morning and I go next door and I sit at my computer and I start to type. There's peace within just close your eyes, breathe in the power, and just realize. I learned to wait. My time would come. I'd celebrate because I was the one between two mountains. I go, whoa, this isn't me. And I feel these go I feel the goosebumps now saying that to you. I feel this weird thing that George wasn't pissed off between these guys. He was grateful because they made a greatness of two mountains. And it's just like us being on the TV show. We had to write songs, original songs, Bert and I to fit in between the Beatles and the Stones and the Beach Boys, George had to write a song that when it came time to play the song, it had to fit in there between Lennon McCartney's best and maybe one of the worst that got bombed thumped out and George just got in there. So I had this feeling. Then I wrote the second verse, more about us in life, the mountain of good and the mountain of evil. We're between two mountains. And then I had a three, I've never written an ABC song. That's ABC and then repeats ABC. I've always done a chorus and a hook and a chorus and a hook and A, B, A, B, A, B. 
And so suddenly I write this different kind of song, and I've heard, I'm going to put three pieces of music behind this that are very distinct. I'm going to borrow from George's Beatles stuff. And I start to borrow some Indian sitar stuff and some tabla, and I write this song. And the solo in the middle is his greatest solo, I think, from And I Love Her. So when you play Between Two Mountains in the middle here, and you go, where is that from? Wow, that's from And I Love Her. And then you listen to Don't Bother Me, the solo from Taxman's in Don't Bother Me. The solo from My Sweet Lord's is in a different song. And you, So if you're a guitar freak, you then listen to this album going, wow, I'm playing George's solo in a different song. And so it's really cool. I had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. You listen to the album in entirety. It should be listened to in its entirety like a Beatles album because it's bookended with Between Two Mountains and the, the other one's done with backwards loops and all kind of noises and tape flipping around like film at the end of a film and all these like strawberry fields forever. We just had great fun and figured I'm not going to get any airplay. I might as well go nuts. I was invited to England for John Lennon's 75th birthday about four years ago. Went to Liverpool. His sister, Julia, brought us brownies, which was John's favorite birthday cake. Gave us John Lennon glasses. I go to see Beatle, uh, the Beatles show there, Let It Be. A friend of mine was putting it on there. I'm really immersed in Beatles. I ride the bus. I get my hair cut at Penny Lane Barbershop and all that. I come back and I go, wow, that was great. John Lennon, me at John Lennon's birthday. Yeah, I'm there with a bunch of Canadian lawyers and stuff and guys. What kind of, George was the youngest Beatle. When's he... When's he 75? Oh, 2018. Great. When's his birthday? February 24th. Well, I got an excuse to do an album. So I do something weird and different like Neil Young said, don't do the same old stuff. Get a reason for doing it. And the first one was the 60s blues with these two girls. And we totally rocked out. And then doing this George Harrison thing with my band who've been together 30 years, who know every Beatles song backwards. And my son, Tal, who grew up on the Beatles. I'd go on the road and come home. All my Beatles records would be all over the house. Laid out, not in their not in their sleeves or jackets. And I'm about to tear a strip off of him. My best friend says to me, "Are you nuts? Your son is studying the Beatles. Do you understand <laughs> what that is? These guys took the word from A, yeah, 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 to Z, to Z in Canada and England, to Z with marmalade skies and relax your mind and float downstream. These guys took the world through bubblegum pop." ABBA, heavy metal, like she's so heavy. These guys did everything. Your son said, leave him alone. Buy, buy yourself a set of Beatles stuff. Let your son have these and listen to them. So we're all really into the Beatles stuff. So to get these guys together saying, we're going to do 10, George, 10 or 12 George songs. And by the way, we're going to make them unrecognizable. I've got these grooves from them, like Taxman. I do like in a fast Chicago, like ZZ Top. Then we stop. Let me tell you how it will be. And it's like when we do that live, the crowd goes nuts. And they don't know what it is because we solo for the first two minutes. Okay, so at this late date, how, much, how many live dates are you doing? Well, we started George's birthday. February 24th, 25th at BB Kings in New York. We went to Canada. And luckily, now things are staggered. Things came out first as a download. Then CDs, now the vinyl's out. The vinyl's this big. Uh, I went through a transition on the date of the uh, eclipse. So I have a picture of the eclipse at the cover of my album. That's me going into my new phase of life. With I'm uh, moving to a new city. I'm going to get a new woman in my life. I've got a new album. I've got new so did you did you do all those things? Did you move to a new city? I'm in city? the middle. I'm going home to say goodbye to my house. I'm flying to my new house in Victoria next Friday. I okay. have a couple of women waiting to go to dinner. <laughs> you are so alive. It's unbelievable. How about the old days? Do the royalty still come in? Yes, and wonderful things happening in the world to me and everybody else. It's called reversion of copyrights. They expire after a while, and the original creators can apply to get them back, so we're working on that. But things got really, really good in the 90s 
when classic rock radio came out, it's a format. Because before that, they'd only play a golden oldie right. or a graveyard groovy or some old thing, and they'd right. play Monster Mash or something like that on Halloween. Now it's like a whole format. And then everything came out in CD, and every goon that bought our album in vinyl bought it in CD, and now those are gone. Now they're buying them in vinyl again. They're, I just remastered eight BTO albums that's coming out as a box set in November. With yeah. outtakes, and they all sound similar now because they're all mastered by the same guy. And for 2020, I'm preparing the Monster BTO truckload, it's called. That'll be remixes of everything with outtakes and intakes and other solos. Because you usually try one or two solos. Now you just lengthen the song because you've got Pro Tools. You make the solo twice as long. You bring in your other solo that nobody's heard before that might even have a mistake. And what's wrong with the stakes? Neil Young plays them all the time. Do you know what I mean? And so do I. Like they're part of being no, alive. the mistakes are what makes something great. I'm that a makes big a human. Exactly. Right, exactly. Right. So like, yeah. I've got Japanese recordings of the Beatles. When, when they got them to master in Japan, they couldn't read the mastering notes. So the end of Taxman or the end of My Guitar Gently Weeps, Paul McCartney makes 12 bass mistakes. I play that for all my friends, and they go nuts. Paul making mistakes? <laughs> I mean, they love it. So it's great to have the, those mistakes in there. Okay, so what's the dream presently? The dream is to have the George album be a success, to play one song called You Like Me Too Much, which I did in Gypsy King style, and to play it on the Grammys with the Gypsy Kings, who I saw last week in London, and they were just great. So if you well, listen, to, I gotta tell you, if you listen to "You Like Me Too Much," it's a tune to chink, right? La 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 la, and we're singing in Gypsy, and my son sings in Spanish. So if I can do that song anywhere with the Gypsy Kings, it would be. I've seen them ten times. I love these guys. Well, the amazing thing, talking to someone of your generation, which is my generation, who's a musician, I must say I've not encountered someone as optimistic and enthusiastic about music at this late date. You're really excited, and it's infectious. Thank you. Well, I'm still a fan. I have one, my own radio show in Canada called Randy's Vinyl Tap, and I play all my old vinyl, and I tell my stories like I've told you about Brian Wilson or Paul McCartney or touring with Ringo Starr, that nobody knows these stories. So I will do a two-hour show. It's a Saturday night on CBC. And I tell these stories. I'm in my 13th year. So to do this show, it's like a two-hour theme. One, one thing will be girls' names. Right. The next thing will be boys' names. The next one will be summer songs, driving songs, songs about hope, songs about love, songs about the earth for Earth Day. And that allows me to play 50 or 60 years of rock and roll, right from Little Richard right to Lady Gaga. Do you know what I mean? Are you, what I mean? A, are you a hip-hop fan? Are you yeah, a I play fan? everything. Really? Yeah, it fits my theme, and that's why people love my show. It's like old radio. You were old radio. It was with Cousin Brucey or exactly, exactly. Wolfman Jack. They played the Ames Brothers, and then they played Johnny Horton, North to Alaska. And then they played Elvis, and they played the Stones, Can't Get No Satisfaction. Then they played Stephen Evie Gourmet, Blame It on the Bossa Nova. You know what I mean? And then they played the Ventures, and they played everything. Radio was exciting. You never changed the channel when you listen to radio. Every Saturday, you listen to the top 50. You listen 50, 49. You listen, what's number one? You listen all day long. Now wow. everybody's changing. You can hear the same song every day at 210 on all these radio stations. I know. It's, it's certainly not what it once was. But you are still what you once were. You're very, as I said earlier, exciting and enthusiastic. And Randy, we've been listening to Randy Backman on the Bob Left Sets podcast. Randy, thanks so much for doing this. Thanks. You are a legend, and it's a thrill to talk to you. That's it great. wasn't what I thought. Well, what did you think it was going to I thought you were going to slam me. You're, you're Why would you think I'm going to slam you? Because you're very opinionated, which is good. Right. 
And my son is saying, don't talk about politics. My manager is saying, talk about vitamins. Bob's into health and I'm into health and all these vitamins. <laughs> but uh, what you did was really great. I, it was a, really a nice ride for me through my... Well, history of my you know, life. I can all the records you're mentioning. I have my own specific stories where I was That's when great. I heard those. Great. And off the first BTO album, I had my one of my clo two closest friends from college. He's from Kansas City, mm -hmm. and they played oh. it there. We just played Kansas City. Okay, he, two they, nights ago they played it there, and I was unaware of the record with the New York City radio market. Mm. And then, of course, BTO two comes up, and it's the biggest band in the land. Yeah. As I say, I literally have, I can tell you, you know, this is about you, but I can tell you where I heard four-wheel drive in Mammoth, California the first time. I wow. can tell you being, schlepping some golfers around, hearing, you know, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's like, these songs are part of the American and the world fabric. Well, that's, my stage show is this, just what I told you from Shake On Over On. I tell every story of every song. I tell George Harrison stories. So I start with three George songs. This is what we did at the Troubadour a couple of nights ago and last night in... Palomino Club, and the night before in Kansas City. People are sitting down. They don't want to stand up and dance. They dance near the end. We come up with tax man and taking care of business. And by the way, Elvis used taking care of business as his logo, his motto. Elvis made me start to play guitar. I wrote TCB. It's on his tombstone, TCB. I've seen Priscilla saying Elvis heard a Canadian band singing that song and said, that's my logo. So TCB, my connection with Elvis is complete. You have now come full circle, Bob Lefsitz. <laughs> I was going to ask another question, but since it's full circle, we okay. should end there. Okay. Thanks again so Thanks, much, man. Randy. Okay. That wraps up this week's episode of the Bob Left Sets podcast. Recorded live at the TuneIn Studios in Venice, California. Some epic stories and a bunch of fun. Email me at bobleftsets.com if you want to tell me what you thought. Till next time, it's Bob Left Sets. <laughs>